0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have another great show for you today. Uh, but first, Lindsay, do you have any media recommendations, shout-outs, or happy thoughts to get the good vibes rolling on this episode?
1: Sure. I think the main thing we want to talk about is Fat Bear Week. Yes. Because the people have been clamoring to hear our takes about that. I will, just before we get into that, though, give... I'm not going to call it a recommendation. We are watching Love is Blind. <laughs> I don't know if you should watch it as well, but we're watching it. If somebody else is already watching it, I'd be interested to see what they think. But I won't necessarily tell you to start watching it because this season is a fucking mess.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a beautiful dumpster fire so far. I, I if anything, would recommend this season more than other ones because if you like reality tv for the mess uh this is definitely a very messy season
1: i guess that's true i feel like there's been there's just been more relationship mess in prior seasons and this year it's just kind of like general mess yeah and there's only like there's a lot fewer couples to focus on this year because Everyone hates each other.
0: Yeah, I am. I am interested to see how the producers are going to manage it. Instead of, um, yeah, because fewer couples made it to the proposal and are and are still rolling, so they're going to have to allocate their time differently. They might have to throw in some like different twists to kind of just fill the airtime. Mm-hmm. So I I think it's going to either be really fun or perhaps really boring in the last in the last bunch of episodes that's going to drop next week. Um but thus far I've I found it very enjoyable.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm in, I'm enjoying watching it, but it's like there's not really a couple to root for this season.
0: Uh I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, Maybe you're not as cynical as I am. I mean, I like Izzy and Stacy. I think I think they're cute. Um I definitely think they're going to have some issues to work out related to them coming from different class backgrounds, yeah. but eh, we'll see, we'll see.
1: Yeah. Anyways, let's move on to what people actually care about.
0: Fat Bear Week. Yes. Uh as you're listening to this, uh we are in the midst of Fat Bear Week. Um let's see. Yeah, th- this will be dropping on Wednesday, I believe, voting for Fat Bear Week is theoretically supposed to start tomorrow, as we're recording this, October third, mm-hmm. um, and a champion will be crowned on October tenth. But currently, I think some stuff is still up in the air. Do you want to? Do you want to talk about that?
1: Well, whenever I was looking at the website earlier, it did say that they were going to have the bios and announce the bears in the running tonight
0: okay so okay.
1: monday october 2nd at 7 p.m eastern time is what i saw so that that has not occurred as per this recording yet but it will have occurred so we'll see we'll see if there are some of our faves from the last y- years back up or if we have some fresh meat in there i did look at the junior cub that recently was crowned yes and he is stupendous A good bear.
0: Yes. Spring Cub 806. uh, Very good. He got very fat and we're so happy for him. Um, Just as some background, Mm -hmm. if this is your first year listening to the Mm -hmm. Stronger by Science podcast, this has become a bit of a yearly tradition around these parts. Uh, The Katmai National Park in Alaska um, has a competition every year uh, called Fat Bear Week that... You know, I'm honestly not sure what purpose it serves, maybe just to bring attention to the park, um, maybe sell so. some merch, whatever, yeah. uh, but it also brings awareness to um, a very important issue in the Ursine the community, which is that bears have to get very fat because they hibernate mm-hmm. and they need uh, plenty of, of fuel in their body to get them through the winter. And so every year they run this little competition. It's it's a bracket. Uh, anyone can vote, where you basically just vote on uh, which bear you think got the fattest, or just who which bear's uh, bulking journey you enjoy the most. Right. And and they crown a winner. Um, and so yeah, that's uh, that's going to go on. It almost got either canceled or postponed due to the government shutdown that I think is going to be averted. I believe so. Um, but yeah, like it's it's a national park, so it's federally funded. Uh, all of the employees' salaries, and including the people who would be doing all of the fat bear stuff on, on the website, mm-hmm. uh, comes from federal money. So if the government would have been shut down, those people would have been furloughed and uh yeah the the competition would have been postponed or or canceled this year mm-hmm. um but yeah that isn't going to happen but i i do think they're a little bit behind as a result because right. all of that was up in the air for a while um so yeah Lyns just from just from like history or memory do you have any any bears that you're pulling for this year <laughs> even though they haven't announced yeah. all of the contestants well
1: 747 won last year right yes and I was looking back at his before and after from last year, and honestly, incredible work by him. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing an update. Um, but you know, I would love to see some new bears in the mix.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Grazer as we've as we've talked about uh, in in previous iterations of Fat Bear Week content. But I also think if you're if you're a betting person it's hard, it's hard to pick against four eighty otis. Mm, um, yeah, like and, another the,
1: reigning champ.
0: yeah, he's won four times. Mm-hmm. and you know, I won't pretend like I'm a year round fat bear fan. like there there are cameras in the park that you can just like watch right. a live stream of. Uh, that's not me. Like, I'm not that dedicated to the cause. Now, I
1: did find a YouTube channel that curates the best from those live cams. Ooh.
0: Because
1: I wanted to check out 806 Spring Cub and see a bit more of his journey. And uh, yeah, there's there's people out here doing the Lord's work of watching the bear cam and <laughs> clipping and giving you like four-minute videos on YouTube. If you are interested in that,
0: uh, honestly, send that to me. I will. Um, also, can you can you post that in the show notes? I will. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, but yeah, w- what I was gonna say is like, I feel like I feel like four eighty Otis for for a casual fat bear fan like mm-hmm. me. Yeah, it's kind of like being an NBA fan in the nineties, where it's just like, yeah, you don't follow the offseason, you don't know what moves were made, but like going into the year, it's like I assume the Bulls will be good again. Uh, that's, that's how I feel about Otis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It should be another, uh, another exciting week and another great fat bear season.
1: Yes. Very exciting.
0: Uh, okay. So we are about to get into the plugs and start the episode, but before we get rolling, I just want to make one quick note. Uh, and that is that next episode, we we're aiming for it to be a crowd pleaser, um, So this is the third part of our micronutrient series. And we realize that that is not the topic that everyone is the most interested in. Um, I think it's cool. I think it's been some good content. But uh, yeah, like the the listener numbers are down. Like I can take that on the chin. Honestly, (laughs) I kind of expected it. Um, So next episode, we want it to be uh, stuff that... You are very interested in and very invested in so we are going with an all Q&A episode Mm -hmm. Um, So the episode will be as interesting to you as your desire to submit a question that you want an answer to so uh, Ask good questions and it'll be a good episode If you have a question that you'd like us to address on the podcast could be about anything uh, record a voice memo uh 30 to 60 seconds and email it to podcast at stronger by and uh if we like your question we'll answer it on the next episode uh so yeah i i think that's it for housekeeping notes uh let's let's get into our plugs
1: yeah so if you're enjoying the show please like rate subscribe and tell your friends it really helps us out and helps people find the podcast If you're interested in hiring a virtual coach to help you with your training and or your nutrition, Stronger by Science has a team of excellent coaches that can help you. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source and support the podcast at the same time, check out bulksupplements.com. You can use the code SBSPOD to get a 5% discount. And other than supporting our team of coaches, the main product Greg and I focus on these days is Macrofactor, our premium macro tracking and diet coaching app. We both use it and love it. It recently uh, celebrated its second birthday. It's been out in the world for over two years now. Um,
0: Which is 14 in dog years.
1: (laughs) Okay. I don't know how that translates to app years. I don't know if it's more or less. Okay. Thank you for that input though. No problem. Um, But if you would like to try Macrofactor, you could do it for free for 14 days by using the code SBS during sign up. It's available on the App Store and Google Play. Or if you want to learn more about the app before you sign up for that free trial, check out our website, macrofactorapp.com.
0: Absolutely. And if you would like to stay up to date on uh, exciting new research coming out, there are two things you could do you could check out our newsletter, um, which you can find at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. Uh, We send research breakdowns every two weeks on podcast off weeks. Uh, It's not just a bunch of promotions. We won't spam you. It's like almost everything you get if you sign up for the newsletter is just going to be the type of content that you're interested in. We're assuming since, since you listen to this podcast. Uh, and if you would like to take that a step further, uh, you could subscribe to the MASS Research Review. That stands for Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Uh, great group of folks run it. Um, they go through all of the studies published uh, for the, for anyone who's interested in getting stronger, getting more jacked, getting leaner, whatever. Uh, if you want to keep up to date with the research, MASS, I think, is the best way to do it. Uh and if you would like to get a little bit more into the Stronger by Science content universe, um you should join our Facebook group and subreddit. The Facebook group is Stronger by Science Community, the subreddit is uh just R slash Stronger by Science. Um that is the best place to go. But either of those places is, is the best place to go. Uh, if you'd like to stay abreast of all of the things going on, uh, especially related to the podcast, mm-hmm. so we are, for instance, going to be answering your micronutrient-related questions uh, at the end of this episode, and the way that you would have known that we were going to do that and to submit questions on that particular topic uh, would have been to join the Facebook group and subreddit. That's where we put out the call. Uh, so yeah, those are those are good places. You should check them out. Uh, and then finally, just kind of i already mentioned this but just standard plug here at the end uh if you have questions for the podcast uh record a 30 to 60 second voice memo don't exceed 60 seconds we will not listen to it uh 30 to 60 seconds though that's that's the sweet spot under 30 seconds would also be fine yeah but like no one actually does that <laughs> uh <laughs>
1: no one's concise yeah they're I, a which... stronger by science fan i i can't
0: judge anyone for <laughs> I know, that i know um But yeah, yeah, Uh, record a voice clip and email them to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. All right, let's let's get into it.
1: Yeah, like you mentioned, today we are wrapping up the three-episode micronutrient series. So the first episode we published covered micronutrients themselves, what they are in their history. The second episode discussed nutrient targets, uh, where those targets come from and what they mean. In this episode, we want to get a little bit more practical and discuss which micronutrients are most worth monitoring if you want to do that, and why you shouldn't allow a focus on micronutrients specifically to detract from the pursuit of a generally healthy diet.
0: Absolutely. And uh, just so you know, all all of the things I'm about to mention will be linked in the show notes, Um, but there is a five-part article series on micronutrients uh, on the Macrofactor website. The kind of landing page for all of those articles will be linked in the show notes. And this article, or this episode in particular, um, mostly covers content from the last two articles in that series, which will also be linked in the show notes. Uh, and lastly, if you would like to read more about each particular micronutrient, um, we have just a, a page of content on each of those micronutrients in the macro factor knowledge base and kind of the the landing page for that will be linked in the show notes as well so if you want to know kind of uh how easier difficult it is to track a particular nutrient Mm -hmm. the general likelihood that you might be consuming too much or too little of that nutrient uh good dietary sources of nutrients etc those are the sorts of things on each of those micronutrient pages and uh yeah kind of the The homepage for all of those will also be linked in the show notes. Yeah, that's
1: such an excellent resource that you put together. Thank you. And it's not just for macrofactor users, obviously. The Stronger by Science audience could get a lot out of that as well. I hope so. So, (laughs) yeah, today we're going to talk about uh, micronutrients that are most worth monitoring. So I think to set us up for answering that question... Um, Greg, will you tell us what the difference is between an insufficient intake and a deficient intake? I feel like this is something that um, probably is gonna seem obvious once people learn it, but it's not always in the conversation when you're when you hear about micronutrients.
0: Yes. I think I touched on this in the last episode, but just to just to make this more explicit at the start of this episode and to kind of frame everything we're about to talk about next. Uh, I think that it is... I think terminology matters in this discussion and very frequently when people talk about consuming like a little bit less of a particular nutrient than the RDA or the EAR or the AI or whatever, um, there's a tendency for folks to use the term deficiency, like Mm -hmm. you're not consuming quite enough, therefore you're deficient in this nutrient. Um, But that is not the best term to use most of the time. Uh, Generally, uh, insufficient or inadequate intake is uh, how you would see that described in the research and by public health bodies. And the reason for that is there is a big difference between insufficient intake and deficient intake or having a, a nutrient deficiency. Um, so like just in general, if you have a micronutrient deficiency, um, there will generally be something extremely wrong. That's very noticeable. Uh, the example I gave in the last episode is with calcium. Like if you have a calcium deficiency, um, oftentimes one of the first things that'll happen is like, there will be errors and kind of like the rhythmicity or signaling in your heart and like it can cause heart failure. Um, You you, would
1: notice that.
0: If you have insufficient calcium intake, like it's still not ideal, but kind of the normal consequence of that is like you might have a slightly higher risk of osteoporosis over your lifespan. Yeah. Um, So two two very, very different things. And at least in most developed countries, uh, micronutrient deficiencies are very rare um but insufficiencies are considerably more common and so in this episode we're talking we're going to talk about um the nutrients that that people overconsume but then also underconsume mm-hmm. and when we're talking about like risks or rates of underconsumption of those nutrients we are talking about insufficient intake not deficient intake right like uh, an analogy that I think is helpful here is if you think about it in terms of like a car, uh, consuming adequate amounts of a nutrient is like taking extremely good care of a car. Like you're getting top of the line oil, the best tires, uh, the best brakes you can get, um, always putting in high octane fuel, getting really consistent tune-ups, etc. cetera. Um, and like, so, you know, like, Going like like doing doing really really good. Uh, insufficient intake. It's kind of like taking w- what I would often consider to be like normal <laughs> care of a car, but
1: depends on someone's definition, probably. Yeah, maybe like how a how a teenager would take care of their car.
0: Yeah, or just like people of maybe lower socioeconomic status. Like that's kind of my my context. Uh, mm. But yeah, like. So, you know, you're you're still taking it in for an oil change every 5,000 miles, but like maybe sometimes you push that to 6 or 7,000, like you're getting the tires changed, but maybe they're getting worn down a little bit too yeah. much occasionally. Um, and so like, you know, the consequence there is the car probably won't run quite as well as it would if you took really really good care of it, and it might break down. Uh, a little bit like it might need to be serviced a little more often it might Mm -hmm. end up breaking down a little bit sooner but like generally it's still going to have a pretty good life like things are going to work pretty well most of the time and then like deficiency is kind of like just never changing the oil Mm. which like the car will putter along for a while but eventually like something is going to break very badly Mm -hmm. and it's going to be fucking obvious um so yeah like that's I think not a terrible analogy. I
1: like that for analogy. For framing this, thank I you. I think that's a perfect analogy. Um,
0: so yeah, like an, um, like we're talking about insufficient intake here. We're not talking about deficiencies, right? Um, so for everything we're about to talk about, we're we're just kind of going to kind of go down a list of uh, things that people might consume a bit too much of, maybe not quite mm-hmm. enough of. Um, but everything we're about to cover here, I made a handy table for that will be linked in the show notes if you want to refer back. Uh, and, you know, like, I don't know how long this episode is going to be. Hopefully, it's la- it's shorter than the last two, but uh, it, it's probably we still... We don't be- have
1: a great track record with that's that. That's
0: true. Like, it, it's probably still going to be at least, like, 90 to 120 minutes of content. Um, and so, yeah, if you'd like a resource that you can glance back at for... 30 seconds instead of needing to re-listen to like an hour of content um a a table that will like summarize Mm -hmm. all of this will be linked in the show notes um so yeah let's uh let's get into it
1: yeah so we're going to talk about three groups of micronutrients to pay close attention to nutrients that are often over consumed nutrients that are often under consumed and nutrients that vegans in particular may want to pay close attention to so greg let's start with those that are over consumed
0: yeah so um just like one like very small correction there um some of these that are often over consumed are just like kind of general nutrients like not specifically micronutrients Mm. um which which like very very small correction but I don't want anyone writing in and being like, "Greg said saturated fat was a micronutrient." Um, anyway, like we we understand the distinction, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So in kind of the standard Western diet, there are uh, a handful of nutrients that are often overconsumed, and there are a couple that I think a lot of people believe are frequently overconsumed, mm-hmm. but maybe aren't so much. And I'm I'm going to touch on those as well. Uh, but the first on this list is added sugar. Um, the recommended intake uh, differs depending on what source you look at, but the USDA uh, here in the U.S. recommends added sugar to comprise less than 10% of total energy intake. The American Heart Association recommends less than 5% of total intake uh, of total energy intake. Actually, I don't think that was their exact recommendation. I think they recommended like. A number of grams per day to stay below but it was consistent with like a 2000 calorie diet for women 2500 calorie diet for men and it would be like less than five percent of energy in those two diets Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. just kind of like abstracting it like less than five percent of total energy Uh, and the british nhs recommends to keep it below 30 grams per day um so like don't consume a ton of added sugar like that's the basic takeaway Um, and the average intake in most of the developed world, like it differs country to country, but it's somewhere around like eight to 15%. -hmm. Um, it's like some countries in Europe are down closer to like eight, nine percent, which would kind of come in under that recommendation from the USDA, but would still exceed the American Heart Association and the NHS's recommendation. Uh, 15% is, that's like quite a lot, like 15% doesn't sound like a big number, but that's basically like a sixth of your total energy intake from added sugar um also i think that there is the general perception that added sugar intake is increasing over time and that that's like driving a lot of disease burden and whatnot and, like added sugar intake is generally still too high but it is, it's actually trending down like it peaked hmm. it peaked in the early to mid 2000s and uh as there has been more awareness about, hey, maybe don't consume that much sugar. It is like gradually trending down, but uh, on average, a lot of people are still consuming too much of it. Uh, Moving on, saturated fat. Um, The recommended intake from most health bodies is to keep saturated fat intake as low as possible, um, but to definitely try to keep it below 10% of total energy intake. the average intake in both the U.S. and EU is higher than that. And in America specifically, only about a third of Americans uh, meet that recommendation to keep mm-hmm. it below 10%. And I'll note about this, like, this recommendation is more controversial than I think it should be. Like, mm. there, there is... Um, in kind of like the online fitness and nutrition space a relatively large group of folks who are who, who tried to push the idea that all of that is bullshit and saturated fat is totally fine uh doesn't increase your risk of cardiovascular disease um might increase your ldl cholesterol but like that's uh irrelevant um yeah <laughs> And like this, this isn't like, I'm probably not the person to do like an in-depth episode uh, on this. And like, this definitely isn't the podcast episode to get super in-depth on this topic, mm-hmm. but like, that's just fucking wrong. Yeah. Um. Like, so kind of starting with epidemiological research and, and like the stuff I'm about to reference will be linked in the show notes, um, higher intakes of saturated fat are associated with uh, greater risks of cardiovascular disease, um, greater intakes of saturated fat, um, like directly increase LDL cholesterol. And there's also like pretty strong meta-analytic evidence that lowering LDL, uh, cholesterol reduces rates of cardiovascular disease in a predictable w- way with like a strong dose response relationship, which like, very 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 strongly suggests that we're dealing with a causal relationship here um so yeah like limiting saturated fat intake is a good thing um and uh yeah more more people should probably pay a bit of mind to that because most people do seem to over consume it mm-hmm. uh, moving on another one that might be like somewhat controversial and i understand the controversy around this one a bit more and that is sodium Mm -hmm. so uh like different public health bodies have different recommendations for sodium but most of them suggest uh that sodium intake should be somewhere around like two 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 and two and a half grams per day so like 2000 to 2500 milligrams per day like it's it's usually expressed in milligrams um an average intake in most developed countries is like way way higher than that yeah for understandable reasons like well-seasoned food is delicious yeah just Um, tastes better yeah so one perspective on this is that that recommendation is too low or at least should be kind of like circumscribed a bit more and like given like more kind of like context around it Mm -hmm. um so some folks will make the case that the only reason that you should worry about sodium intake is if you have high blood pressure and like sodium sensitive hypertension in particular Mm -hmm. and a lot of people have hypertension but not every hypertensive person has like sodium sensitive hypertension Mm -hmm. and so they would suggest that like most people are fine to consume a lot of sodium, but, like, consuming a lot of sodium has, like, excess deleterious effects specifically for, pe- like, sp- specifically for sodium-sensitive hypertensives. Yeah. Um. So that, that's one way to look at it. And that is, I don't know, until about a year ago, I think, kind of the camp that I was in. Mm-hmm. And I'm still sympathetic to that way of mm. viewing things. But, but you left
1: the camp. Are you trekking to uh, a new camp?
0: I don't know. Like I'm I'm I don't think I have a strong take on it anymore. Okay. Um so there was a meta-analysis that came out like eh, last year, two years ago, like relatively recently, um, that suggests that um high sodium intake is related to like stroke risk. Mm-hmm. And there's also like quite a bit of animal research that's being done um finding that high salt intake is like mechanistically linked to to like disease mechanisms related to the kidneys, brain, vascular, and immune systems mm-hmm. um and so like that that stuff will be linked in the show notes as well. and so like you don't want to draw like too straight of a line between animal research and and human health outcomes. Um, and the, and the stuff with, uh, with stroke risk, like it could be similar to the sodium sensitive hypertension thing where like hypertension is a risk factor for having strokes. Mm -hmm. So it could just be that people who consume a lot of sodium, most of them are fine. They're not actually elevating their individual stroke risk, but kind of on a population level, you're consuming more salt. Some of those people will be more sodium sensitive and they have an individual like large elevation in stroke risk and so you you get kind of those epidemiological trends like that is certainly a possibility or some more of like the animal mechanistic stuff could be at play here and there is like a driving causal factor beyond simply potential effects on blood pressure mm-hmm. um so yeah like i'm i'm sort of in the middle of those two two perspectives right mm-hmm. now like it's, it's something that to have a strong take, I feel like I would need to dig much deeper into the research than I have to this point had time to dig. Mm-hmm. Um, have you changed your sodium
1: intake or your personal habits no. in the last year? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I, I, I'm not concerned enough to modify my own salt intake. Um, but, you know, that may be one of the reasons, like just being completely transparent, that may be one of the reasons I haven't dug into this more because like... Uh. I like salty food, yeah. And I don't want to be worried every time I eat salty food. So, yeah, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, j- just in general, like, given the public health guidelines related to sodium, like most people do overconsume it. Mm-hmm. Um. So those are the three that are where overconsumption is like very common. Um. There are two. Uh, nutrients here that I suspect a lot of listeners would have expected me to include on this list that I did not Uh, and the first potentially controversial exclusion is uh, Mm -hmm. omega-6s and the reason I say that's potentially controversial is uh, there's currently a lot of panic about seed oils and like uh, omega-6 fats like linoleic acid in in particular is like the Dominant fat in seed oils. Um, and this is also not the episode to get super, super into seed oils. Um, but yeah, so the reasons that people are concerned about it is I think that there's the general perception that uh high intake of omega-6 fats like directly causes an increase in inflammation, which is not necessarily the case like it's it's considerably more complex than that Mm -hmm. um and i think the way so like a lot of research like back in the day maybe like 10 15 years ago was looking at like omega-3 to omega-6 intake ratios and finding that like a higher ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 intake was associated with higher levels of inflammation um and I think the way that that research is kind of leaning now is that um, when you're dealing with ratios, you have both a numerator and a, de- and a denominator, like you're dealing with yeah. two numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio if you're consuming a lot of omega-6s or if you're just not consuming that many omega-3s. Yeah. And I think the way that things tend to be leaning now is that like, con- under-consuming omega-3s is was like the primary driver of those research findings. Mm. Like if you consume a lot of omega-6s, but also a lot of omega-3s, like that's fine. Mm-hmm. And if you don't consume that many omega-6s, but you also don't consume many o- omega-3s, like that's also not great. Um, So yeah, th- th- that's that's the first thing. Like the the reasons that people are concerned related to inflammation, I think was largely based on the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio stuff that, Um, and, and it's just an area where like the bulk of the research kind of looks at it with a more like updated nuanced lens where it it seems to be more about like total omega three intake instead of that ratio. Um, and then the other thing is like, there are some kind of like, there are some animal studies that look very scary. And there are some like small cohort studies that, that, Uh, some people get concerned about but like when you zoom out and look at just the totality of the human research like there are a lot of people consuming a lot of omega-6s out there and when we look to see what their actual chronic disease burden looks like or what their mortality outcomes look like um, generally consuming a lot of omega-6s are associated with like pretty neutral effects on health and mortality outcomes or In the case of some outcomes, like maybe small positive effects, uh, there was a Cochrane review on that in 2018, which will be linked in the show notes. And like I said, this this really isn't the episode to get super, super in-depth on this. Um, But if you would like a very in-depth treatment um, on the kind of like con case for uh, if if like the pro cases, omega sixes are dangerous and people overconsume seed oils and that's killing everyone. Um, the like the anti case for that. Um, there's a really good article on uh dot about this, uh, and and I follow that guy on Twitter, uh, Nick Hebert, and he has been just like like so a lot of the like anti seed oil folks. Are just like, hmm, it's crazy. Like, no one will debate us on this topic from kind of the the establishment, the people that hold the view that uh seed oils are fine. And he responds to all of them. Like, like I'm I've discovered him because like I followed some of those like quacks that are like super anti-seed oil. Yeah. Um, and he just like kept popping up in the responses. I was like, oh, this guy seems like really annoying to people that i find very annoying so like let me just follow him <laughs> yeah. like see see what he's about um and yeah so he everyone who's like oh why will no one debate me he's like i'll fucking debate you and all of them turn him down um anyway it's just kind of fun and he, he has a really good article on his website about seed oils nice. that will be linked in the show notes uh the other potentially controversial exclusion for nutrients that are that are overconsumed is trans fats, mm-hmm. um, not because just consuming a bunch of industrial industrially produced trans fats is good, but because most people don't actually consume like many, if any, industrially pr- produced trans fats anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a fun thing I learned when I was uh, just like doing reading for the like micronutrient pages in the macro factor knowledge base. Um most industrialized countries have completely phased out trans fats mm-hmm. in in foods. Um so like food manufacturers used to like trans fats because they were cheap to produce and they increased the shelf stability of foods and they also like just had they improved like texture and mouthfeel and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, there was some research showing that like, yeah, they're not good. They increase inflammation. They increase heart disease risk, blah, 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 whatever. Um, and for once, the United States actually led the charge on a comp- on a consumer protection issue <laughs> um, and passed legislation, I think in like 2017, 2018, oh, saying wow. Fairly recently. they need to be phased out. And they did, I think, grant an extension I think they were supposed to be phased out in 2020 but they ended up being phased out in 2021 mm-hmm. um they're like we need the Crisco during COVID I guess so uh no I, I think it was just like yeah supply chains no, are fucked know, up I whatever don't. like we'll, we'll give you a bit more leniency yeah. um but yeah the the EU followed suit soon thereafter uh Canada and I think Australia did as well um and and wrapped up their phase out like earlier this year mm-hmm. um so yeah like trans fats just like aren't really much of a thing anymore in in most products mm-hmm. um now there is a new like industrial process that has replaced the process of partial hydrogenation which mm-hmm. was what made the trans fats before um which is i think biochemically quite interesting it's called interesterification so basically um instead of making solid fats with a relatively lower saturated fat con like, cuz like like that was another benefit of trans fats like um so trans fats are technically unsaturated fats mm-hmm. like they're mm-hmm. sh- they're structurally and functionally similar to saturated fats um but they are like I, they must be unsaturated um like that's that's like definitionally what it means like you have a like trans uh like a trans configuration of a double bond instead of a cis configuration of a double bond. Like So they're unsaturated fats, like consumers had been taught to be fearful of saturated fats. So they gave food manufacturers like a way to put fats in foods that had the same like functional outcomes as saturated fats, like improved shelf stability, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but consumers wouldn't see saturated fat on the food label because they're, they weren't saturated. So interesterification is like a new process that food manufacturers are using to accomplish the same thing Mm. where essentially like so triglycerides, which is how most fats are kind of like stored functionally, um, is a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids attached to it. And if you have, I think, one saturated fat In the middle of that glycerol backbone, and then two unsaturated fats, like one on either side. Mm -hmm. So like within the triglyceride, you do have a saturated fat molecule in it. Mm -hmm. Um, it'll still wind up being solid at room temperature and like Mm -hmm. behaving as if it was a saturated fat, even though like two-thirds of the actual fatty acids are unsaturated. So that's uh that's the process they're using now to kind of create the trans fat like effect without trans fats and like i don't know like biochemically i can't think of a reason that it would be scary and bad like trans fats Mm -hmm. were but who knows like in 10 years we might find out ah that's bad too yeah um but yeah so that that's how they were able to phase out trans fats while still having like another relatively cheap um like functional way of accomplishing the same thing so foods that previously had trans fats if you're like ah i think i think these fuckers are lying like like crisco still seems like crisco <laughs> yeah uh it must still have trans fats in it like no like now it's just using interesterified fats mm-hmm. um so yeah I, yeah I thought that was cool
1: you still see like i still see trans fats on some food labels a very small amount um like 0.5 grams or something why yes. is that
0: is it yogurt <laughs> Um, yes, I'm trying to think of things like, you eat. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Dairy yeah. stuff.
0: So there are naturally occurring trans fats um, that are mostly. Hmm, I don't want to overstate it. I think th- I think they entirely come from ruminants, but it might just be mostly from ruminants. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so in like the the fermentation process, like in in the hind guts of ruminants, like cattle, sheep, mm-hmm. goats, whatever. Um, some of those bacteria create some trans fats that the research currently suggests like they're fine. Like they're not the, the primary trans fat. Oh, man, I'm doing this from memory. I might be about to fuck it up. But the primary trans fat that was like industrially produced and used in a lot of stuff was called, I think, elaidic acid, mm. which was basically the trans version of the like cis fat oleic acid which is like the primary monounsaturated fat in like olive oil mm-hmm. um and so like when you look at the epidemiological research uh related to like intake of ruminant trans fats versus like oleic acid in the industrially produced trans fats you don't see the same associations with heart disease from like high intake of dairy products or beef products or whatever like the foods that do have a little bit of those naturally occurring trans fats in them um, but yeah, so like, like dairy hasn't been outlawed, um, <laughs> like the, the industrially produced mm-hmm. trans fats are what has, uh, what has been done away with, but yeah, like dairy products do have some trans fats in them, but they're like, ju- they're like biochemically different. And so far the research doesn't suggest that mm-hmm. they have the same deleterious health effects.
1: Yeah, That's helpful to know. So that if you see that on a label, you're not like. Oh, no.
0: Yes. This
1: company is breaking the law.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's probably just a dairy product.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, okay, so those are the nutrients that are overconsumed and the nutrients that aren't probably overconsumed, but a lot of people think they still are. Um, so now let's get into the nutrients that are often underconsumed. And just as kind of a note to frame this, um these are based on based on research looking at intakes relative to typically like ears Mm -hmm. so um like how many people are consuming less of a nutrient than the average need for the nutrient in that population Mm -hmm. and these are all nutrients that at least 20 percent of people seem to have insufficient intake of again insufficient not deficient big difference but also don't be like that spooked by it because if you refer back to the last episode due to the way that like EARs work, it is entirely possible for 20% of people to consume less of a nutrient than the EAR, but all individuals to actually still be consuming as much as they need because kind of definitionally about half of people can consume less than the EAR and that is sufficient for them. Um, so yeah, like I just wanted to make that point. Like I don't want to over make that point because it is also like extremely likely that a lot of people do actually have like insufficient intake of these. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all of which is to say these are the nutrients that people probably could stand to consume a bit more of. But when you hear like, oh, there are like, ah, how long is this? This is like 12, 13 nutrients that like at least 20% of people under consume, A, that doesn't mean 20% of people are deficient in them. Right. And B, that doesn't even mean that 20% of people aren't consuming as much as they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that you are deficient or even insufficient in all of these things. Like ju- just kind of standard caveats on the front end. But these are the ones that if you wanted to track your uh, micronutrient intake, in an app like, for example, maybe Macrofactor, who knows, um, th- they would be good ones to keep an eye on. Yeah. Cause like the, the basic problem we're trying to solve here is there are like in apps with like full robust micronutrient supporting or a uh, uh, full robust micronutrient reporting, there are like close to 60 nutrients that you could keep an eye on, yeah. which is a long list. Yeah. And
1: there's no way yeah, you like, can focus on all of those. It, it
0: would it would be a very poor use of time to closely <laughs> monitor your intake It'll for all of these every insane. day. Yeah. Um so yeah, we're we're just trying to kind of help cut it down to a slightly shorter list of mm-hmm. if you want to track your micronutrients and focus on them, these might be the ones worth paying like a little bit closer attention to. Right. Um just to kind of help narrow that focus.
1: Yeah. So how I'm gonna go through these is just to Give the nutrient, and then to just give some good sources of that nutrient. Um, and again, the resource that Greg put together for the MacroFactor knowledge base has all of this information for each nutrient. Um, so that's a good thing to reference back to um, if you don't want to be like furiously taking notes about <laughs> foods for each of these nutrients. But I'm gonna start with fiber. I feel like that's one of the, um, the ones that we hear about the most. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to track fiber alongside um, the main macronutrients. So... Ooh, actually,
0: can I just make one more tiny note? Of course. Okay. So these lists of like good food sources for each of these nutrients, mm-hmm. where that came from is... Um, In macro factor, like the main source we have for foods with like full robust micronutrient reporting Mm -hmm. is uh, the NCCDB, which is a like research grade food database maintained by the University of Minnesota,
1: I believe. I think that's right.
0: Yeah. Um, But yeah, like it's kind of like the gold standard database for like foods with full micronutrient reporting. Um, and so where this came from is like, we have the CSV file for that. Um, and a, don't ask me to share it with you. Like I will not, we, we are, <laughs> yeah. we are contractually not allowed to. Um, but B like what I did is essentially just kind of like, um, normalized everything per hundred calories. Right. And then just like sorted, uh, the CSV by Ds. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be by descending. So mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, it's not every food in existence, but it's most whole foods that exist. And it's just kind of like the foods that have the highest density of these nutrients per hundred calories of total intake. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, you're trying to increase your intake of one of these, but you don't um, want to just consume like a ton of calories in the process. Like, you know, for instance, like fatty beef has some zinc in it um, and you can get, plenty of zinc intake from beef. But yeah, you might have to consume like 700 calories of beef or whatever. Whereas there are foods that are um, like considerably more uh, energy sparse that Mm -hmm. have like higher densities of this. Mm -hmm. And, And that's important context to give mostly because as you're listening to this, you will notice that things like nuts and seeds, which are really good sources of a lot of of micronutrients won't show up on these lists Mm -hmm. and that's just because like they're also relatively energy dense um so yeah like just just to note the methodology yeah um because like if there are some foods that are excluded that you would expect like oh hey i know such and such is a good source of vitamin e why was it not on the list um it's typically because it's just like relatively energy dense and so this is like both micronutrient density but also like energy sparsity like those are the two things that are th- that are accounted for with the methodology i used
1: yeah that's important to note yeah. okay so for fiber per 100 calories some of the best sources of dietary fiber are artichoke which has 20.9 grams per 100 calories which is a lot
0: that's a ton
1: rhubarb has 20 grams uh turnip greens 17 and a half um, and then just a couple more um, that are below that, but above 10 grams per 100 calories. Sauerkraut, yicama, banana peppers, raspberries and blackberries, lettuce and collard greens. Hell yeah. So just good stuff Fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, omega-3s is the next one in particular epa and dha so you mentioned omega-3s just a minute ago when we were talking about Mm omega-6s but some good sources of omega-3s are uh, caviar and other fish eggs and seal fat those are at the top of the list with more than two grams of combined epa and dha per 100 calories but that's not exactly like uh, super actionable for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anyone who's like, oh yeah, I'll just consume more seal fat, easy.
0: So uh, a fun a fun thing to note as I was uh putting together the con the like yeah. micronutrient content for the knowledge base, I-, I edited most of these out. Um but for a lot of nutrients, the best sources were either the meat or fat from bearded seals or uh like whale meat or whale blubber which like those aren't uh those aren't like accessible nutrients for most people (laughs) yeah um like especially for like when i was going through the individual amino acids um dude like bearded seal and like whale meat are like super good sources of most essential amino acids but i also think they're illegal to hunt so like i'm not sure why they were in the database in the first place um but yeah, they they seem to be uh, nutrient powerhouses, which which was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, cod liver oil is a classic EPA and DHA powerhouse. Um, but in terms of more readily accessible foods, um, it's it's just a lot of seafood. So salmon, mackerel, sardines, anchovies, uh, Pacific oysters, fatty tuna are all particularly high in EPA and DHA. With 0.8 to 1.3 grams of combined EPA and DHA per 100 calories.
0: Yep. Just most like cold water fatty fish.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go through some vitamins next. So vitamin A... Uh, Liver has by far the highest vitamin A concentrations, as we talked a little bit about last episode when (laughs) Greg went on his rant about bears. Uh, But fatty fish, eel, yogurt, and dairy products are also great sources of vitamin A. Uh, Vegan sources of vitamin A are generally rich in carotenoids. That's how you say that, right? Yeah. Awesome. Rather than retinol. So that's uh, like lettuces, peppers, sweet potatoes, Spinach and other leafy greens, pumpkin and carrots, mm-hmm. vitamin B six, uh, peppers, liver, cabbage, watercress. Watercress is one that showed up a lot in your research. Like that is like, I don't like the term superfood, but if we want to, if we want to be calling out superfoods. It's watercress?
0: Yeah, i i also uh, i also like removed it from some of the list for like some of the nutrients. Yeah, because you're
1: just like, God damn it, it's well, for all
0: of them. Well, yeah, I was like, if people are looking through this, I don't want them to think that like I'm telling them they need to eat yeah. this like little microgreen. Like I'm some yeah. little fancy boy. You're sponsored by um, big
1: watercress.
0: Yeah, but like watercress is uh, like astoundingly nutrient dense, mm-hmm. but. Again, like this is per hundred calories and it's also very energy sparse. Right. So like that's, yeah, that's relevant. Yeah, because it's just a green. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so other B6, zucchini, other leafy greens, okra, garlic, tuna, cauliflower, mushrooms, turkey, and salmon. Mm-hmm. Next up is folate. So great sources of folate include green leafies. Once again, get your green leafies. Spinach lettuce turnip greens arugula collards mustard greens um, asparagus yeast products Chinese cabbage specifically mm-hmm. Chinese cabbage uh kelp and seaweed uh, nori so nori is another one that showed up a lot for you right yes that's another uh quote superfood
0: yeah yeah it, it showed up all the time mm-hmm. um yeah I mean it's it's the bottom I mean like it's sea seaweeds and and algaes are kind of like the base of the marine ecosystem um like we talked about bioaccumulation in the last episode as well and like when people say like ah like seafood has like seafood is good for you generally like folks who aren't like super informed about nutrition yeah oftentimes do generally have the idea that like seafood seafood is good right um and, and a lot of that just has to do with the fact that like the base of the marine ecosystem like it's mostly seaweeds and algaes Mm. um whereas the base of like the terrestrial ecosystem tends to be like leaves and grasses yeah and um when you compare the two like seaweeds and algaes are just like generally more nutrient dense than like leaves and grasses are yeah Um, but yeah it's it's good stuff
1: should start feeding all of the land mammals or like the land animals that we eat watercress see what happens
0: maybe <laughs> i don't think that would be very like economically efficient <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: maybe a maybe an experiment someone can run if they just have like a couple farm animals they keep
0: that would be fun yeah yeah
1: um a couple more for folate i'll give here liver once again okra peppers beets and cauliflower mm-hmm. um vitamin
0: c uh I don't know. What what type of cherries are these, Greg? I would pronounce that acerola or acerola. How, do
1: you know how that's different than regular cherries? Is that what regular cherries
0: are? Um, Let's see. No, no, they aren't. They aren't. Special um, cherries. They are, I think, not actually even cherries.
1: Oh, wow. I'm glad I asked.
0: Uh, I could be wrong. Yes, yes. It's a fruit similar to a cherry. That is not, uh, botanically speaking, actually a cherry, but they're sometimes referred to as Barbados cherries or West Indian cherries, and um, yeah, I think they're just like little fruits that grow um, in what 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 ocean is that? The Caribbean, like like islands in the Caribbean. Um, but yeah, they they were the most vitamin C dense uh, food in in the database.
1: All right. So those peppers, watercress, again, guava, most berries, high in vitamin C, uh, citrus fruits, kiwis, and cruciferous vegetables, all mm-hmm. great sources of vitamin C. Uh, vitamin D is next. Again, this is especially important for people with darker skin in higher latitudes, which is something we've discussed on the prior episodes. Mm-hmm. Good sources of vitamin D include mushrooms, fatty fish, dairy products, many of which are also fortified with vitamin D. Yeah,
0: like so, dairy itself isn't particularly rich in vitamin D, but just in terms of like foods you would buy in the store, most dairy products are vitamin D enriched, so they become good sources of of vitamin D. Nice.
1: Yeah. Um, Eggs, plant based dairy replacements. That have also been fortified with vitamin D.
0: Same reason, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And pork products. Uh, most food sources of vitamin D are animal products, so many vegans, um, especially vegans who don't consume a lot of mushrooms, benefit from vitamin D supplementation.
0: Yeah, mushrooms also come in clutch. Like you've you've been mm. calling some stuff out as as we go along, um, but yeah, like mushrooms are full of a lot of just like weird nutrients that people often don't think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly if you don't consume animal products, um, mushrooms tend to have a lot of the stuff that might be more challenging to consume in in a vegan diet. Mm-hmm.
1: Mushrooms are great. If yes. you're vegan and you're not eating mushrooms, that's sad.
0: Or the, if you're an omnivore and you're not eating mushrooms. Also sad. They're delicious yeah. and so versatile. And... Another thing I'll add, if you're not a good cook, Mm -hmm. mushrooms are a great thing to cook to kind of get your feet wet Mm -hmm. Um, because it's so hard to fuck up mushrooms because like with with, uh, like animal products, for Mm -hmm. instance, like meat, if you overcook it, it just like gets really dry and it's disgusting. (laughs) Vegetables, you overcook them, they get like really mushy, also kind of disgusting. Mm -hmm. Mushrooms... Since, uh, like, like, due to the way that, like, their protein structure is, um, if you cooked them for, like, days, eventually it would break down and, and they'd go mushy. Um, but it's very hard to overcook them and dry them out like meat. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also, like, tremendously difficult to overcook them and make them go mushy. Like, they, they just have, like, a very robust protein structure that mm-hmm. is extremely resilient to undercooking, overcooking whatever. Um so yeah, like they're they're a good food to like just practice cooking. Um because mm-hmm. you have you have so much leeway. Like it's so hard to fuck up mushrooms.
1: Yeah, I feel like they're really good at absorbing flavor too, which is another reason they would be good to practice cooking with. Yeah, like they're, they're like, little sponges. Yeah, see how flavor combinations work. Yeah. yeah. Um okay, next one is vitamin E though greg says he's not totally sold on that one so we're gonna kick it over to him in just a second but some good sources of vitamin e are nuts seeds peppers green le- green leafy vegetables tomatoes and wheat germ uh, many oils are also fortified with vitamin e to prevent degradation during cooking
0: yes so like you mentioned i am skeptical about vitamin e um and thank you, actually, to uh, one of the MacroFactor developers, Corey, for bringing this to my attention. Because um, when, uh, like, when when he was working on the micronutrient features in MacroFactor, and he started monitoring his intake more closely, he realized that he was, like most people, uh, under-consuming vitamin E. Like, given the the intake targets that public health bodies propose for vitamin E. And he also looked around he's like, it seems like none of the foods I or most people eat are that rich in vitamin E. Like hmm. the, the things you listed here, like nuts, seeds, peppers, green leafies, whatever, they do have some vitamin E in them. But like the fact that like nuts and seeds are at the top. Right. In spite of being quite energy dense. Yeah. Should suggest that like it's pretty difficult to consume a lot of vitamin E in your diet without just eating like 1400 calories of nuts a day, which like most people aren't doing. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it's like, Hey, what gives? And so, um, yeah, he, he asked me about that. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I'll look into it more. And I came across a publication from the EFSA, which is like the, the European body that sets their, their micronutrient targets, the European food and safety authority. Mm -hmm. Um, and here is, here is a quote from their publication um, where they like set set their, their AIs for vitamin E. Um, so, so here's the quote. The classification of vitamin E as an essential nutrient is based on animal studies and primary and secondary alpha-tocopherol deficiency in humans. The need for alpha-tocopherol, which is like the primary source, like th- this is not from the quote anymore. Uh, alpha-tocopherol <laughs> is kind of like the scientific name for, mm-hmm. there are like multiple chemical compounds that fall under the umbrella of vitamin e but like alpha tocopherol is like the main one okay um just just so people listening will know what they're talking about uh the need for alpha tocopherol in order to prevent fetal reabsorption in pregnant rats fed lard containing diets is the origin of the discovery of the vitamin the chemical name tocopherol describes er, or derives from its essentiality for normal reproduction in animals even though the essentiality for this function has never been demonstrated in humans symptomatic alpha t- alpha tocopherol deficiency in individuals without any disease and who consume diets low in alpha tocopherol has never been reported wow. so here's my very hot here's maybe my hottest micronutrient oh, take oh wow i kind of think that vitamin e should be considered a conditionally essential nutrient yeah um so yeah, like, like basically to, to break that down and just provide a little more context, like it is it is definitely like something you need. Um, so like people who have uh, like genetic conditions that um, create like errors in vitamin E metabolism mm. or people who have like intestinal disorders uh, or like conditions that um, inhibit or completely prevent the absorption of vitamin E do suffer health consequences as a result of like not having enough vitamin e in their body but for people who are generally healthy don't have those genetic conditions that interfere with vitamin e metabolism don't have any like gastrointestinal issues that prevent the absorption of vitamin e um even when people like consume extremely low amounts of vitamin e in their diet like they seem fine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, it seems like most people don't need to worry about vitamin E intake. Um, in spite of the fact that like, as alluded to at the start of this story, the like AI, like the, the adequate intake value for vitamin E is quite high. Um, so Hmm. like, I'm not totally sure where that disconnect comes from. Uh, but um, basically, like vitamin E is is on the list of nutrients that according to the intake targets that public health bodies propose, it seems like the vast majority of people under consume. But I'm actually not so sure that the that most or like hardly anyone actually under consumes it because like right.
1: it sounds like it might not even be essential.
0: Uh, well, no, like like it is essential. Like oh, Okay. If, if you fed someone a completely vitamin E deficient diet, like no vitamin E whatsoever, mm-hmm. like bad things would happen. Okay, But like there's a little bit of vitamin E in like a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. It seems like if you consume a little bit of vitamin E, like you're fine. Okay. Um, anyway, so yeah, like it 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 is on this list because I applied the same methodology to everything. Like there's research on uh, like rates of insufficient consumption of various essential nutrients and like vitamin E shows up on those lists. But I, I just wanted to voice my skepticism about whether it should be on that list and whether it should even be considered like an essential nutrient for everyone in the first place. Because like most, most right. people just don't need to worry about right.
1: it. Right. That's what I was saying when I said, yeah, not essential. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to the next vitamin, which is vitamin K. Yes. Uh, sometimes referred to as K1 and K2. Those are the two types. Uh, They have similar biological functions. Green leafy vegetables are by far the best source of vitamin K1. And um, some fermented foods, most notably natto, which is a Japanese fermented soybean product. Um, Those fermented foods are the best sources of vitamin K2. Mm -hmm. Next up is choline. So egg yolks, fish, liver, and shellfish are all particularly good sources of choline. Legumes in general, and soybeans in particular, are good vegan sources of choline. So those are our vitamins. Mm-hmm. And now we are on to minerals. First up is magnesium. Good sources of magnesium include green leafy vegetables like chard and spinach, rhubarb, okra soy products whole grain products and many nuts and seeds Mm -hmm. potassium is next so once again green leafy vegetables eat your green leafies mushrooms root vegetables like potatoes and beets, tomatoes various squashes including pumpkin summer squash acorn squash and zucchini asparagus peppers okra cruciferous vegetables beans and most fruits great sources of potassium Mm -hmm. that's a lot of things for potassium yeah like it's basically Basically most plants
0: yeah just like most plant products
1: yeah um with the exception of nuts seeds and grains most plant products Mm -hmm. pretty good sources of potassium and uh last up is zinc so shellfish mushrooms liver dried seaweed once again nori beef um green leafy vegetables whole grain products particularly the bran and uh, some seeds all good sources of zinc absolutely and so that was our second category of uh, things that are often under consumed Mm -hmm. now we're moving on to our third Um, the last category is vegans the nutrients that vegans in particular may want to pay close attention to
0: Yes, so just, just at the start of this, uh, I will acknowledge that we on this podcast are both omnivores, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of vegans are sensitive to uh, omnivores who are, are trying to be well-meaning, um, lecturing them about, uh, like, don't go vegan, like, it's so hard to consume a nutritionally complete diet, Where where's the protein coming from, like, blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um we're not on that tip. Uh, like we have absolutely no issue with people being vegan and certainly not trying to harangue anyone about that. Um, but it is also true that certain nutrients do predominantly come from animal products. Um, and so like, yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible to, Consume a very healthy and nutritionally complete vegan diet. But like certain nutrients, it might take a little bit more planning. And uh, when you look at the research on uh, like rates of insufficient intake for particular nutrients, there are some where rates of insufficient intake are quite a bit higher for vegans than for omnivores. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's that's what we're going to talk about. So the first is... uh, EPA and DHA, like the two kind of most important omega-3s. Because again, like most of the best sources of EPA and DHA are uh, like cold water, fatty fish. Um, But if you're not going to consume them and you also don't want to consume fish oil because like you're very strict about your veganism, totally understandable. um, It's probably not a bad idea to look into an algae oil supplement. Uh, again, going back to the idea of bioaccumulation, most of the omega3s that would show up in a salmon in the first place did start in an algae. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's I think a little bit less efficient to produce algae oil and therefore like it's a little bit more expensive than fish oil would be. but like it contains the same EPA and DHA um, probably a, a decent thing to look into. Um, the next one, which like, I'm sure some eyes will be rolling when I mention this. I'm not going to harp on it is maybe some individual essential amino acids. Although I will note the vast majority of the time, this is not something most vegans need to worry about. Um, If you consume a varied diet or if you consume uh, like plant-based products that do have like a full uh, essential amino acid profile. Um, So like, if you consume soy, if you consume like plenty of mushrooms, although I know they're not they're not a plant, fungi, different kingdom of life, uh, but yeah, <laughs> like like fungi and soy, they're mm-hmm. they have the full complement of essential amino acids. You consume some of those, like you're definitely good. Or if you don't, but you consume a generally varied diet, you will also be good. Um, but like if you're kind of lazy about your your intake and like don't have that varied of a diet. Um, you might be under consuming some essential amino acids. So like for, for instance, if you have an extremely grain based diet, you might want to keep an eye out for lysine and maybe like make a point of consuming some, some vegan protein sources that have some lysine in them. Uh, or if you just have like a very legume rich diet and not much else, um, um, You might be, like, you might have difficulty consuming enough methionine, but, like, that's why the the combination of rice and beans is, like, the classic poverty food, because rice, like, it's a cereal grain, Uh, beans, legumes, obviously. Uh, Legumes, not much methionine, plenty of lysine, vice versa for rice. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like, if, if you consume some soy products or mushrooms or just, like, don't only eat, like, one food, like, you probably don't need to worry about it, but, like, that is technically a higher risk with a vegan diet than, than an omnivorous diet. Uh, moving on to vitamins, really the biggest one to pay mind to is vitamin B12. Um, like we mentioned in the last episode, v- like virtually all of the B12 that's out there comes from ruminants. Like uh, the the bacteria in the hindgut of ruminants are really the only things that at scale... Um, produce vitamin b12 uh like they essentially vitamin b12 is just kind of like a normal vitamin structure with like some some cobalt in the mix and there just aren't that many like enzymes on this earth that can fix cobalt in that vitamin structure to make vitamin vitamin b12 and most of the stuff that does do it like lives in the guts of cows Mm. or like sheep or goats or whatever um so yeah, like may not be a terrible idea to look at a vegan B12 supplement. Um, and then there are a handful of minerals that it might be worth paying a bit of attention to. Uh, those would be calcium, iron, zinc, and selenium. Uh, and calcium, iron, and zinc are kind of grouped together. With um, with calcium, it's it's mostly a matter of the fact that like there aren't that many plant-based products that are rich in calcium and most of the ones that are, um, it, like like most calcium in the human diet comes from dairy products. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the plant-based foods that are rich in calcium are also relatively rich in oxalates and phytates, which inhibit the absorption of calcium. Mm. Um, similar with iron as well. Um, so most iron-rich Uh, plant-based foods are also rich in oxalates and phytates same thing like chelates the iron like inhibits the absorption um and just like plant uh like heme bound iron tends Mm -hmm. to be more like orally bioavailable um and similar with with zinc as well uh the other the other uh mineral that's kind of like affected by the same um like set of circumstances where Foods that are rich in it also tend to be rich in phytates and oxalates, is magnesium. Um, but like, vegans don't need to worry about magnesium intake more than anyone else does. Mm-hmm. And the main reason for that is like, basically, every magnesium rich food is like a plant food in the first place. Right. Um, but yeah. So, but yeah, calcium, iron, zinc might be worth paying attention to. Like, a lot of the richest sources of those minerals are animal products. And a lot of the plant products, like the nutrients themselves, might be slightly less uh, bioavailable. And then uh, the last one, for reasons that I'm totally not, I'm not totally sure of, is selenium. Like most good sources of selenium are also plant products, but um, research on just kind of like uh, uh, blood biomarkers of micronutrient status tends to find that vegans have like lower selenium levels than omnivores do. Um, So, yeah, those those are the ones to look out for. Um, But with most of them, uh, like, mushrooms and soy products help a lot. And for selenium specifically, uh, just, like, eat a couple Brazil nuts from time to time. Most nuts are very poor in selenium. Brazil nuts are, like, extremely rich in selenium. Not totally sure why. Hmm. But do do you know what Brazil nuts are, Lens? the big ones. Yes. I love Brazil nuts. They're pretty good.
1: I always used to pick those out of like the nut mixes that my parents would get. Same. They're yeah. good.
0: Yeah. Uh d- did did they have a uh, shell on or shell off? Off. Okay. We so we got the shell on nut mix around like Christmas time every year. Oh my year. gosh. That's and so much work. Well, it was so like we started getting them when I was like a little guy, like little, little. Mm -hmm. And so like, I remember, so I, I've always been kind of like weirdly obsessed with like testing how strong I was. Like Mm -hmm. it's not a mistake that I found powerlifting. Mm -hmm. And so like we had these little nutcrackers and every year I was like interested to see like, Ooh, can I crack more nuts now than I could last year? Oh my gosh. Uh, Cause like, (laughs) The easiest ones were, like, walnuts. Like, they're big, but, like, they have relatively thin shells. Okay. There's a lot of air in them. So, like, could crack walnuts pretty right. easy. But then, like, almonds were more difficult. And, like, Brazil nuts were kind of my white whale. Oh. Because they, they had the thickest shells that were the hardest to crack. That makes sense. And I remember... um And I also kind of had it in my mind as a little guy that, like, the, the bigger nuts were just, like, more annoying. I think just because, like, walnuts... um like they they were the biggest other than the Brazil nuts like they were comparable in size but like instead of just having like a single thing in there that you could like grab and like most of most of the stuff inside was edible um like almonds for instance like smaller but like you crack it and the interior is yeah. just the almond mm-hmm. like the the uh walnut was kind of like you know, there, there was, like, really bitter kind of, like, pith, like, holding it together, and, like, the nut mm. was in, like, multiple parts. I was like, it's kind of annoying. Like, yeah. I assumed the Brazil nut would be as well, but then when I cracked it, and it was just, like, a, a big fucking guy that was, yeah. like, fully, uh like, filling out the shell, <laughs> I was so happy. Yeah. And it was delicious. And so, like, they are, to this day, my favorite nut. Um How old were you when you could crack open the brazil nut i don't remember i don't remember
1: like still pretty small probably yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah i mean it wasn't like 14 but <laughs> yeah. I, I was probably five or six yeah um but yeah yeah it was yeah
1: fun. a lot of snack for less effort once yes. you can do it
0: and a very good source of selenium
1: of course that was really important to you as a five-year-old
0: yes no i i had no idea um <laughs> it, it will shock you to learn yeah Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. So uh, just kind of zooming out, we we provided this list. Um, But yeah, if if you're going to track your micronutrient intake, just kind of use this list as a starting point. Um, Because what you as an individual need to pay attention to will depend like pretty heavily on your own dietary patterns. So like those are the nutrients that like, on average, tend to be under-consumed in, like, more developed nations, but, you know, your, your diet may not closely resemble the average diet of wherever you live. Mm-hmm. Um And so, like, for example, if you don't eat a particularly varied diet, like, if you're listening to this and you're, like, an old-school bodybuilder and your diet is 90% just, like, chicken breast, rice, and broccoli, um, there might be a lot of micronutrients that you're <laughs> yeah. under-consuming because, yeah. like, Yeah. They're leaving
1: out a lot of foods. Yeah,
0: like the the macros of your diet are good, but like there might be some pretty big gaps there. Mm -hmm. Um, Or just like if you consume a lot of like quote unquote empty calories, like Mm -hmm. a lot of soda, a lot of like fried food, whatever, um, the list might be considerably longer for you. Or just if you have food choices that are like way different than the average person, your list might be the same length but different. Um, Or like if you tend to consume a lot of, uh, like minimally processed whole foods ingredients, like plenty of mushrooms, plenty of fruits, plenty of vegetables, you might be consuming, like there's a very good chance you're consuming sufficient amounts of like basically every micronutrient. And there might be like one or two that you might want to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. Um, all of which is to say, just kind of use this list as a starting point. But what we wanted to do with it is, um, of like the fifty or sixty individual nutrients you could track in an app like MacroFactor, um, you don't want to pay attention to all of them. So like this kind of is is the initial process of right. of helping you narrow that list yes. down a little bit. Um, so yeah, I think that's it for this part mm-hmm. of the episode. So let's uh, let's shift gears. So this whole series has been about micronutrients. And to put a bow on it, I want to take a step back and recommend not getting too fixated on micronutrients and to not fall for the trap of what I like to term micronutrient reductionism. Mm -hmm. Um, So like humans have a tendency to like numerical targets, or maybe that's not humans. Maybe it's just me and people that listen to this podcast. Um but yeah like I like numerical targets and it can be easy to treat something that you can quantify numerically as a as like the outcome that matters to you instead of like a proxy for the actual outcome that matters to you. And so like in this case I think that there's a tendency for people to want to consume a healthy diet. And they're like, okay, well, how, how can I quantify the healthiness of my diet? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to put a number on that. But it is easy to put numbers on how much of each micronutrient am I consuming. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of like operationally define healthy diet as a diet that contains the recommended amount of all essential nutrients. And like in a vacuum, that's fine. Um, but like if you wanted to approach it from the perspective of like i want to eat enough micronutrients and i'm going to do it um, by attempting to kind of conform to what's generally recommended as healthy dietary practices you know eating a diverse uh, array of minimally processed foods to help you meet those nutrient targets i think you would have a very hard time not consuming a relatively healthy diet mm-hmm. um, but it can become problematic when the targets themselves become like you start treating them as your actual goal and metric for success instead of just a proxy for what you're actually pursuing. Um, So in other words, like you might run into problems when a proxy for your goal replaces the actual goal itself. In this case, the proxy is meeting your micronutrient targets and the actual goal is eating a diet that generally promotes good health.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And, you know, we see this... In so many other domains, so like whenever you and I were talking about this before the episode, like it's it, it reminds us of um, people learning that training volume is important for hypertrophy, and then like fixating on getting as much volume, and that being the outcome, rather than uh, focusing on the outcome of the training volume itself. Yeah. Um, or like in a business getting fixated on a proxy measure of success like um your instagram following your tiktok following and that leading you to do things um like buying followers or like putting out content you're not proud of to optimize for follower count rather than actual business growth like just kind of forgetting uh the forest And focusing on the trees, forgetting Mm -hmm. what outcome actually mattered to you at the beginning, and kind of fixating on a proxy.
0: A hundred percent. So yeah, like when you go down this road and you start... And your focus shifts excessively towards numerical targets, you might start making choices that are optimized for the pursuit of those targets instead of the pursuit of the actual goal. So like, for instance... um, you might learn, and and like this is true, that your body can like absorb and utilize preformed vitamin A like retinol um, more efficiently than it can carotenoids, which are like pro-vitamin A. Like um, you absorb them and your body kind of does some metabolic stuff and converts them to vitamin A, but like that's slightly less efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you might like quote unquote realize that, hey, like vitamin A, that's a fat-soluble vitamin. You don't need to consume it every day. There's a shitload of preformed vitamin A in liver. Just eat one serving of liver per week. And now you don't need to worry about vitamin A intake. Uh, y- you don't need to worry about consuming anything with carotenoids. Like you're you're good. Your mm-hmm. vitamin A is taken care of. Um, and so you're like, okay, like I don't need to eat like carotenoid-rich fruits or vegetables anymore, mm-hmm. which... In terms of like vitamin a intake in a vacuum you're a hundred percent right but there are like plenty of health benefits and just like other beneficial bioactive chemicals in carotenoid rich fruits and vegetables that aren't present in liver and so you know you're you're ultimately reaching your target but you're moving further away from theoretically what your goal is Mm -hmm. which is trying to eat a healthy diet right or like for a more extreme example of the same concept. And uh, th- this is related to a question that we were asked a bunch in the groups as we were like putting out this series. And uh, we're going to address it in uh, in the context of like a Q and a question at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but multivitamins, yeah, like you might start by thinking, hey, I'm going I'm going to try to eat a healthy diet that has all of my micronutrients, but then you start getting more, like hyper fixated on the micronutrients instead of the healthy diet and then you realize like wait a second I could just have a diet of like french fries and chicken tendies and just like take a a multivitamin every day and I'm good uh that's the
1: exact example I was gonna give yeah
0: like it starts (laughs) getting warped in that direction like once you start interpreting healthy diet as just micronutrient complete diet right you can eat fucking anything and just take a multivitamin and like you're you're meeting that goal yeah um but uh like and we'll talk about this more later the research on on multivitamins isn't like all that promising Mm -hmm. um and also kind of going back to the carotenoid liver example there's a there's a ton of healthy stuff in like fruits and vegetables that you're not going to get from tindies and fries right um that you would just be missing out on if you went that route and so like just to give two examples because like it's it's easy to say like, yeah, there's a lot of healthy stuff in fruits and vegetables other than the other than the micronutrients. But mm-hmm. like, I think people tend to like concrete examples. So I'll provide a couple concrete examples. So starting with, uh, yeah, more so fruits, but like there's some of these in vegetables as well. Uh, polyphenols, mm-hmm. polyphenols fucking rock. Like I'll, I'll link a research review, uh, in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out um like it's free full text easy to easy to read um yeah like polyphenols have positive effects on like reducing your risk of neurodegenerative disease reducing inflammation levels reducing cancer risk um helping improve cardiovascular health type 2 diabetes uh, type 2 diabetes uh risk and management um and they might also like reduce obesity risk both from like helping your body like partition nutrients better and also like, uh, affecting hunger in a, in a positive way. Like Mm. they do a lot of good shit through like a very surprisingly wide array of mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're not micronutrients. Like they're, they're good, they're good for you. But like going back to the first episode in this series, um, what, what micronutrients are like essential nutrients are things that if you don't consume them, you will die or suffer, like, very deleterious health consequences. And, like, polyphenols aren't essential nutrients. Like, if you never ate a blueberry in your life, you'd be fucking fine. Like, most people throughout human history never ate a blueberry, believe it or not. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but, like, it's it's still good for you. You right. know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I like that you're mentioning this as well because whenever we are going through the list of... um micronutrients that people might want to pay attention to a lot of those were just vegetables. Like there weren't as many fruits and like berries and stuff in there. And you know, whenever you and I were first talking about this, that was surprising to me because I always thought like, Oh, blackberries and like raspberries and stuff like that's super good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it's, they do have micronutrients in them, but it's also like, it's for this reason um, that they are really, really beneficial yeah, like, and if you were just focusing on, oh, what's the most bang for my buck I can get with micronutrient related foods, like you might skip out
0: on some of these benefits. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, like just just fruits in general, but like berries and like cherries in particular, um, do have like a ton of beneficial bioactive compounds that aren't like classified as micronutrients. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, if if you were uh, approaching your diet from the very narrow focus of like only just trying to maximize micronutrient intake, even if you're not going the multivitamin route, like even if you are trying to go like the the right. like whole minimally processed food route, like there wouldn't be a great reason to consume berries because like uh, they tend to be like decent sources of like vitamin K and manganese. Mm -hmm. um and they tend to be like decent sources of vitamin c but like not so much compared to other foods like there there are like way there there are foods that are way richer in like vitamin k manganese and vitamin c um so yeah like you'd look at them and be like yeah that's that's not a micronutrient powerhouse like why bother Mm -hmm. but like it's it's the other stuff in them that like Mm -hmm. aren't micronutrients that tend to make them like particularly beneficial Mm -hmm. Um, now moving over to vegetables, um, like oftentimes like some of the more like, like the vegetables that people tend to make like the most health claims about, like the, that people tend to term like superfoods, which
1: I don't kale. that's all everyone (coughs) ever talks about.
0: Yeah. Like I I don't really like that term, but like I see where people are coming from. And like cruciferous vegetables are the ones that people tend to bring up the most. So, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera.
1: Lots of brassicas.
0: Yeah. Um, Oh, man. Is that a, is that a, that's a circle square situation, but I forget which one. It's either all brassicas are cruciferous vegetables, but not all cruciferous vegetables are brassicas or the other way around. It's the first one. It's you the said first one.
1: Circle, square, rectangle, R- square, R-
0: rectangle, square, rectangle, square. My bad. Uh, um. Yes, yes. So all brassicas are cruciferous vegetables, but yes. not all cruciferous yes. vegetables are brassicas. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, both.
1: Yes, I only know that because of gardening.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh. But yeah. So they're like they're good for you, and they're like a little more micronutrient rich than like berries and cherries are. Mm-hmm. Like they're decent sources of vitamins C and K. Um, and in particular, like the um, the like green leafy brassicas, mm-hmm. like kale, for instance, um, are like very micronutrient rich and energy sparse. Uh, but you know, stuff like as we were going through the lists of like good sources for like a lot of those nutrients, I don't think like broccoli showed up once, for instance, mm-hmm. or if it did, like maybe it only showed up once, right? Um, or Brussels sprouts. Or Brussels sprouts, yeah. Or uh, regular cabbage, only Chinese cabbage. Right. And, um, but yeah, like they do have like some micronutrients, but they're like particularly beneficial due to a class of compounds called isothiocyanates, um, which are, and, and like I'll link some some research related to this as well, but like they have like antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, and antibacterial uh, properties.
1: All the antis you want. Yeah,
0: And, um, you know, like their, their benefits are borne out both from, um, like epidemiological research, but also like mechanistic stuff. Like it, it doesn't seem to be like fully just a correlation causation issue. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like if, if you were being like really, really intentional about micronutrient intake. Yeah, you might still end up eating some cruciferous vegetables, but like not the full range of them because mm-hmm. like only a handful of them would show up on kind of a list of micronutrient powerhouses. But they all have like plenty of isothiocyanates and like they're all good for you for yeah. reasons beyond just their micronutrient content. Um So, yeah, like... The, the basic takeaway here is that you can't reduce the overall like quote unquote healthiness of a diet to its micronutrient content. Uh, if you could, again, like a multivitamin would be a wonder drug, but mm-hmm. it's not. Um, like I, I think it's, I think it's helpful to look at it through kind of the, uh, the lens of like necessary versus sufficient, mm-hmm. like eating plenty of micronutrients is necessary for a healthy diet, but it's not sufficient for your diet to be as healthy as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's easy to miss that if you become like too target focused.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's easier too, like to just focus on eating a wide variety of foods and not necessarily like fixating on a specific micronutrient target. Yeah. You know, like it that's also a reason to do it. It's like, it's just like going to be better for your mental health as well as for your sure. physical health. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, so that that's just kind of like the note that I wanted to end this series on. Like mm-hmm. it has been about micronutrients. There's a lot of good stuff related to micronutrients. There are a lot of people who maybe like should pay a little bit more attention to their micronutrient intake. Cause like if you don't eat a diverse, minimally processed uh, diet, whatever, like there, there's a non trivial chance that you probably could consume a bit more of some micronutrients. And that could have some benefits yeah. for you. But like, if you go that route, basically, what I'm saying is don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't, yeah. don't reduce uh the idea of like, eating a healthy diet to just a micronutrient complete diet, like it, it absolutely goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, And so yeah, like, just kind of I think you can distill a lot of it down to some general rules or guidelines that most people are probably aware of already, like eat your protein, eat your fiber, don't go overboard on added oils and sugars, make sure you're consuming a variety of fruits and vegetables and I would also add uh, seaweeds and mushrooms in there if you would like, Um, and yeah, like a healthy diet will generally be a micronutrient rich diet. But don't just assume that a micronutrient complete diet will be the healthiest diet possible. Like, don't just fully conflate those two things. Right.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Should we get into some of these questions from the audience?
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So we have, I think, four or five questions to round out this episode. Uh, Again, these were questions uh, solicited via the Facebook group and subreddit. So if you want to make sure you're aware of, like, the next time we ask for questions on a particular topic, and therefore increase the probability that your question will be answered on the show, uh, make sure to join the Facebook group and subreddit. And as always, if you have questions you want to ask, record a voice memo, less than 60 seconds, and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get into these questions. All right, here's our first question from Ali Shah. Hey, so my question was, are multivitamins uh, super overrated or is there actually any use of them? Because I see a lot of people that, you know, kind of, even if they do consume an adequate uh, intake to fruit and vegetables, or if they don't, they say, hey, you should take a multivitamin anyway, just to, you know, kind of cover your bases. Now I was wondering if there's any actual truth to that or is that... Completely overrated, not necessary. Do not even need a multivitamin at all? And if you do, do you have any recommendations? All right. Thank you for that question. And I, I say thanks both on behalf of myself and everyone in the audience, because like I mentioned, that was far and away the most common question we got throughout right. this series. Yeah. Um, so yeah, essentially like are, my, are multivitamins overrated? Um, so yeah, I... I kind of think so, Mm -hmm. but there's, I think, I think a fair bit of nuance in answering this question. So a lot of the, so most of the history of multivitamins was marked by very little skepticism towards them. Um, cause like intuitively it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you might not eat a nutritionally complete diet. And if you can just take one little pill a day that, uh, kind of serves as an insurance policy, it feels like a no-brainer. And since, um, you know, a lot of people do under-consume a lot of micronutrients, and since underconsumption of micronutrients is implicated in a wide array of disease states, like, it seems like a no-brainer that taking a multivitamin should have, at worst, a neutral effect on, like, health and mortality outcomes, and more, more likely than not, a positive effect. But I think that that started changing uh, in 2013, when a meta-analysis was published um, that first started like throwing light on this. And I mean, the fact that there was a meta suggests that like, well, it tells you that there were like individual studies published right. before this. But I think I think people previous to this meta just kind of looked at it like, ah, individual studies can it might be underpowered, so you're gonna get some null results that like aren't real. Um, but yeah, this, this 2013 meta was, uh, is highly cited and I think was very influential for kind of cluing people into the idea that maybe multivitamins aren't actually all that good, like not bad for you, but like probably aren't going to do anything, uh, Mm -hmm. all that great for you. So the title of this meta was multivitamin, multimineral supplementation and mortality, a meta-analysis of randomized Control trials by McPherson and colleagues uh, published in the prestigious American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Um, And yeah, so it it collated all of the studies looking at the uh, impact of multivitamin supplementation on mortality outcomes. It it basically found like nothing. Um, So there was no effect on all-cause mortality. Um, There was not quite a significant effect uh, in, um, primary prevention trials, like it, it was kind of like scratching statistical significance, but like yeah. the, the risk ratio is like 0.94. So like, even if there was an effect there, we're talking like 6%, like right. not, not big, um, no effect on mortality due to vascular causes, no effect on mortality from cancer, um, n- and no statistical evidence of heterogeneity or publication bias. So like,
1: that's brutal.
0: Yeah. Like it, it. <laughs> Through through a lot of cold water on yeah. the idea, um, and, and since then, I mean, that was twenty thirteen. It's uh-huh. ten years later now, um, and there's now more like individual research studies. There there are more meta analyses on the topic. Um, there was a really good uh, narrative review from the BMJ in twenty twenty that that I'll link in the show notes. Um, but yeah, like overall, like leading up to twenty thirteen, and now since twenty thirteen there's just not all that much promising research on multivitamin use. Like, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to, uh, you know, reduce risk of, like, most diseases, doesn't really seem to affect mortality outcomes, or, like, if it does, the effect is, like, pretty small and heterogeneous. Like, yeah, it just doesn't seem all that exciting. So kind of the, the anti-case here is that, um, yeah, like, for a lot of multivitamins there might be some issues with the types of vitamins or minerals included so like for instance like we talked about this on the last episode um you know the difference between using like magnesium oxide or like magnesium citrate like right. could be the difference between 40 percent oral bioavailability and like two percent yeah and a lot of them use oxide uh, like vitamin D in a lot of multivitamins they use D2 instead of D3 and like D3 is is quite a bit more bioactive um, so you know it, it could be that maybe multivitamins could be good but like a lot of times they like manufacturers kind of cut some corners mm-hmm. use cheaper ingredients mm-hmm. whatever um, so like it could be that um, another kind of like anti-multivitamin argument that that I've seen um, that I'm also quite sympathetic to is kind of along the lines of what I was talking about at the end of the episode like it might promote a bit of laziness in your diet Mm -hmm. like hey I'm taking a multivitamin I don't need to worry that much about eating my fruits and veggies and so you know you might miss out on other benefits of micronutrient rich foods um and then like the biggest thing is like I mentioned the data just isn't all that promising like if multivitamins were going to do good shit for you like now we have dozens of studies on collectively like hundreds of thousands if not millions of subjects if it was going to reduce risk of like cancer or cardiovascular disease or alcohol's mortality or whatever like it should show up in the data by now but like it doesn't really um and like sometimes when you do see an effect like you know it's not like Everything is just completely nulls across the board. Um, but even like some of the effects that have been observed are like very small. So um, like, uh, yeah, so one, one of the metas that will be linked in the show notes, uh, 2022 meta published in JAMA. Um, and yeah, like there, it found like a, a lower incidence of cancer in people that used multivitamins. But that was just based on four RCTs. So, like, it's a meta, but, like, metas can also not have, like, um, like, an extreme amount of precision if it's based on, like, relatively little data. Um, so, yeah, like, it, it was based on less data than a lot of the other outcomes. And the odds ratio is, like, 0.93. So, again, like, if if it is, like, causally reducing risk, it's not reducing it very much. Um, so, yeah, like, you're you're seeing mostly nulls, and, like, the positive effects you do see tend to be quite small. And so yeah, the, the basis of the anti-multivitamin case is basically just look at the data. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if, if you're an empiricist, regardless of how good you think multivitamins should be, they don't seem to be doing what you think they should. Um, and then the last thing is like, any intervention carries risk that is often, I think, under accounted for. So like the the classic example of this is like, You would think that, um, like, for preventative medicine, just doing, like, all of the screening possible for everyone all the time would be good and lead to better health outcomes. But, like, it often doesn't because you might get false positives and then, like, over-treat people for things that don't actually need treatment. And so, like, yeah, like, just risks coming from, like, excess screening, excess treatment, whatever. And, like, that's kind of a generalizable concern with like any type of intervention so it very well could be that like some small percentage of people do benefit like on an individual level from multivitamin use but there might be like negative effects for other folks where like maybe if you're if you are consuming enough of most nutrients but you're just taking like a broad spectrum multivitamin maybe it's leading to like excess consumption of certain nutrients Mm. for some people and so like in aggregate Maybe it is actually doing some good stuff for some people and some bad stuff for other people, and so it just kind of comes out in the wash. Yeah. But if y- if you yourself aren't um, like well informed enough to like understand which one of those two groups you you'd be falling into, like y- you might be doing more harm than good to yourself by using something you don't necessarily need to use. So that's kind of the anti-case the pro case which like i do think is still a justifiable case to make is um like the the first part is like what ali alluded to like it just seems like a cheap insurance policy like multivitamins are cheap you might not consume enough of every micronutrient so like kind of why not mm-hmm. um which like that is countered by that that fourth concern and like the anti case right well but you might wind up with like excess consumption so it's not just strictly an insurance policy like it it, you can't treat it as if it has zero risk because it does have some risk Mm -hmm. the second thing that like the the pro case might rest on is uh you know someone could say hey it might promote laziness in your diet like you're just taking the multivitamins you don't worry as much about consuming fruits and vegetables they could look at the data that exists that shows that like people like consuming multivitamins doesn't seem to increase all-cause mortality. And Mm -hmm. they could flip that around. They could be like, Hey, if this is making people lazier about their diets, but we're, but we're not seeing an increase in disease burden or an increase in mortality. And these people are like being lazy with their diets and still having the same health outcomes that suggests that it is actually working as that insurance policy. That's true. Yeah. That is a case that someone could make. Um, Another thing someone could bring up when looking at the data is just kind of like a methodological point, which is that a lot of the research, like not all of it, but like most of the research looking at at multivitamins and like health outcomes is focused on kind of like broad stuff. So like total incidence of cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease mortality, total incidence of cancer or cancer mortality and just all cause mortality. Um, and like we are getting more research on like individual diseases or like individual like kind of more narrow health outcomes, but like that research is lagging behind the stuff on say just like all cause mortality, and so there very well could be benefits that the research hasn't picked up on yet because it wasn't designed to look at some of those other outcomes um, so like for instance, like this isn't necessarily multivitamins, but like Calcium and vitamin D are two things you'll find in basically every multivitamin. And like there is research showing that calcium and vitamin D supplementation does seem to help decrease risk of fractures in people with osteoporosis. So like, you know, you could do targeted supplementation when someone's like diagnosed with a disease like osteoporosis. Say like, oh, hey, you've been diagnosed with this thing. Start taking calcium and vitamin D. But if you're looking at it through the lens of insurance policy... You could say hey a lot of people are going to get osteoporosis um and just if all of them were taking multivitamins uh, they wouldn't need to worry about like this targeted supplementation when they get that diagnosis um like their bases would already be covered like it would be serving its role as an insurance policy and uh yeah so like there's just not much research on kind of more specific disease outcomes, like most of it is on like general stuff. So like there might just be benefits that the research isn't currently picking up on. Mm-hmm. Another thing that someone could point out as just another methodological thing is that most of the RCTs on multivitamins are in older adults and are like relatively short term. We're not talking short term, like six weeks, like a, like a hypertrophy study might be. But like, for instance, that 2013 review that I think kind of clued people into the idea that maybe multivitamins aren't all they're cracked up to be. Uh, In that review, the average age of the subjects was 62, and the average length of supplementation was 43 months. And it was looking at stuff like cardiovascular disease and cancer, which, like, diseases like that, and, I mean, like, most chronic diseases that ultimately result in mortality, like all-cause mortality— are at least in part a result of, like, the sum total of actions in your life. Yeah. And, like, I don't want to say, like, that's exclusively what it is. Like, there are genetic predispositions. Mm-hmm. There's stuff outside your control. But, like, in terms of the things that are in your control, like, mm-hmm. it's it's a cumulative progressive thing.
1: Right. A snapshot in your 60s right. might not necessarily be very informative.
0: Correct. And so, like, if you were trying to make the pro-multivitamin case you could say like, hey, maybe they they could do some good stuff. But like if people started taking one a day in their 20s mm-hmm. and carry that throughout their life, it would have positive effects. But by the time someone's starting to take them in their 60s, maybe like, quote unquote, the damage is already done. And like, even if they were theoretically having some positive effects, it's like, hey they're they're not going to like decalcify your arteries like you're <laughs> you're you're mostly to the way to that heart attack anyways yeah. and, like maybe it pushes it off by like a month whereas if you've been taking them for 50 years maybe it would push it back 5 years you know what i mean right um like i'm not saying that's the case but like that is like a methodological right. consideration someone could yeah. bring up um and like i'll also note like for something that i'm far more sympathetic to exercise like I think exercise is good for you. And if you exercise consistently throughout your life, you'll live longer. Mm-hmm. But like, if you wanted to apply the same sort of methodological considerations to exercise outcomes, mm-hmm. the epidemiological stuff looks really good. Like folks who exercise, mm-hmm. uh, have like lower rates of all because mortality, and like lower rates of most disease outcomes than people that don't, but Uh, RCTs where you take people who are already in their 60s and 70s and get them to start exercising there's not a ton of good evidence showing that it makes people live like dramatically longer Hmm. um for I think like similar reasons like I, I do think it it like causally makes you healthier and causally helps you live longer right but if you already have like 60 years of progression towards the disease that's ultimately going to result in your demise (laughs) You know, like not to be too fucking morbid about it, but like starting to exercise then I think will probably have a positive effect. But like the research doesn't suggest that it's like that large of an effect. Yes. And so it could be a similar thing going on with Uh multivitamins. Um, And then the last thing is uh, and this is from the 2020 BMJ narrative review. Um, This is a quote people using uh, supplements tend to be older female and have higher education income and healthier lifestyles than people who do not use them it's so, like th- that kind of pushes back against the idea that like it just makes people lazy with their diet um, it seems to be more like folks who are interested in their health are doing this other thing that they think will improve their health right um, but also that might set you up with like a situation where you're not necessarily dealing with the ideal population to detect an effect Mm -hmm. um because they're they're already
1: doing a lot of other healthy yeah they're doing a lot of other good shit yeah
0: um and like they might already be like more likely to be consuming a micronutrient uh sufficient diet right and so the ones that take a multivitamin might not actually wind up with like fewer micronutrient gaps in their diet than the people who aren't like just due to the population you're dealing with um so yeah like on balance, I don't think multivitamins are as much of a no-brainer as they would seem to be if you hadn't looked into this topic much. Um, But I've also seen some people who are like stridently anti-multivitamin, like Hmm. approaching it from the perspective of like, there is no justifiable, cognizable reason for anyone to ever use a multivitamin. It's like, like, it's definitely a waste of money and we have enough research and the right type of research to be like very very confident that that is the case Mm -hmm. and i'm not quite there yet like i think those folks might be overplaying their hand a little bit um and maybe failing to recognize some of the drawbacks that are present in the current base of evidence that we have on multivitamins Mm -hmm. so yeah like i don't know I, i don't know if that's uh the answer that that ali was looking for Um, but yeah, like I, I would say in aggregate, I I mean, I don't know. I I think the saying like actions speak louder than words, kind of like me still consuming plenty of sodium. Like I don't take a multivitamin. Um,
1: and you also, like, I have talked about taking a multivitamin before and you have advised me to not worry about it. And I think that that speaks even louder than what you do yourself.
0: Yeah. I, I like you more than I like myself. (laughs) Um, yeah, like I, I am, I think, more in the anti-multivitamin camp. Like I'm, I, I personally don't think they do much, yeah. if anything, but um, yeah, I, I'm not like incredibly confident about that. Like mm-hmm. I, I do think that there are still some gaps in the research right. that I would like to see addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, uh, next question from Stephanie Grace Fultz
1: hey greg and lindsay my name is stephanie grace fultz Uh, my question is about vitamin d so barbell medicine stated somewhere that um, low vitamin d is normally the result of another health problem Um, so normally like low vitamin d by itself isn't a problem it's the result of another problem so one am i understanding that right and two Why would a healthy person have low vitamin D? Um, I'm asking this because my blood work came back that I have low vitamin D and it's been tested multiple times and I refuse to supplement because I just don't feel like dealing with it. But I sleep well, I eat well, I lift weights, I do cardio, I don't have any underlying health problems that I know of. Um, So I'm just curious why the heck I have low vitamin D. Thanks so much. And I love the show. Lindsay, you're killing it, girl.
0: All right. uh, Thank you for that question. Um, and so let me first say that, uh, I hope nothing I'm about to say will, will contradict what, what the good doctors, Jordan and Austin have had to say on the topic. Uh, and I will link their podcast episode in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen to it, their, their podcast episode about vitamin D. Um, but yeah, so I'll answer the second question first, and then just generally talk a little bit about vitamin D and kind of like flesh out the first question that uh, that Stephanie had, but probably not fully answer it. Um, so why do you have low vitamin D? Easy answer. I don't fucking know. Uh, <laughs> like it could, it could be that you don't have that many like rich sources of vitamin D in your diet. Um, it could be that you lead like a generally healthy lifestyle, but uh, I don't know. You're from Massachusetts and you get direct enough sunlight for vitamin D synthesis like four months out of the year and you're not outside all that often like those you know it it could be lifestyle could be diet could just be random Um, why you as an individual have low vitamin D I have no earthly idea and if that's something you want to get to the bottom of um, that is something to work on with your doctors Uh, so yeah then just to kind of talk a little bit more about the the first part of that question, um, the idea that low blood vitamin D is often indicative of poor health rather than the cause of poor health—that um, is true, and I think it's something that not all that many people are like super aware of. There is, like, I I think there's there's a movement around what's termed the vitamin D hypothesis, which. Like most hypotheses in like most like sweeping hypotheses and like health related stuff is like if it's right to some extent, it's like oversimplified to the point of being wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's predicated on the idea that like when you look at epidemiological research at like looking at the association between blood levels of vitamin D or like the, the main biomarker you look at which is serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D, which is often written just 25-OHD or 25-OHD3, um, like blood levels of like that particular biomarker of vitamin D are like strongly associated with a ton of positive health outcomes. Like if you have higher blood levels of 25-OHD, like generally you have lower uh, risk of cancer, like lower risk of heart disease, Uh, lower risk of, like, dementia, lower risk of, like, all-cause mortality, like, pretty much any positive health outcome you would want that is associated with higher blood levels of vitamin D. Um, But, you know, classic principle. Correlation does not necessarily imply causation, or if you want to get even a little fancier, correlation that does imply causation doesn't necessarily imply the direction of the causation. And in this case, um... I kind of think it's a bi-directional like sometimes if your like blood levels of vitamin D are too low like that could be a causal factor in disease progression or like the risk of like developing a disease in the first place Um, but also like uh, like Stephanie alluded to um, oftentimes low vitamin like low blood levels of vitamin D aren't the cause of a disease but are like indicative of disease states or like poor health so yeah like the the epi like the most basic epidemiological research finds like positive associations between high blood levels of vitamin d and all sorts of positive outcomes but when you go a, like one step deeper there's not a super strong association between uh dietary vitamin d intake and serum vitamin d status mm. Uh, There's also not a super strong association between sun exposure, even when corrected for, like, latitude and, like, skin melanation and all of that, and serum vitamin D status. Like, the the association's there, but, like, it's not as strong as one would anticipate, just kind of, like, going down, like, the causal chain that, that one would think. Um... RCTs testing the effects of increased sun exposure and increased vitamin D intake on vitamin D status generally do find increases in in serum vitamin D, but the increase usually isn't particularly large, and it tends to be highly variable, and in general, it mostly seems to be effective for people who have, like, really low serum levels in the first place, so, like, as always i forget what the units are for this but like the the like number for like blood levels of 25 ohd it's like anything under 20 is considered deficient Uh, and and like different different health bodies have like different numbers they put on this but Uh like in general under like 15 20 is considered deficient Uh, Under like 30, 40 is considered insufficient. And then a lot of people say like, oh, try to keep it above 50. And some people even say, try to keep it above 75. Um, And in general, what you see is like in studies where they look at the effects of increased sun exposure or just like UV exposure or increased vitamin D intake on serum vitamin D status. For people who have uh, like serum levels at baseline in the 10, 15, 20 range, um, you do tend to see increases, but if someone's like in the 25, 30, 35 range, oftentimes it doesn't do anything. Mm. Or like if it has an effect, like it's a pretty small effect, like it, it doesn't seem like people can reliably like sun exposure or vitamin D intake their way to serum levels in the 50 to 75 range. Um, yeah. <sighs> So yeah, like it's usually the effect isn't large, tends to be highly variable and tends to be mostly observed for people who have like the lowest status at baseline. Um, and another complicating factor is like serum vitamin D status isn't always indicative of molecular vitamin D status, which like this this one's uh, a bit of a mind fuck and I'm not gonna get into it, but like there have been observed cases of people who have like mild vitamin D toxicity within like, um like particular cell types that like bioaccumulate it but still like low levels of 25 ohd in the blood so like Mm -hmm. the screening test itself might be kind of sketchy for some people because like there are factors that can influence like cellular accumulation versus like circulating levels in the blood um and also it's it's likely that causation goes in both directions so um like low vitamin D may be causally linked to some disease cuz like vitamin D is a steroid steroid hormone like it has direct effects in like almost all cell types um and like it's it's linked to uh like it, it has impacts on like immunity and like um like things that that modulate like inflammatory status and and like things that are like either associated with or like causally Uh, Affect disease progression for some diseases. And so like I do think it is quite possible that like if your vitamin D levels are low enough that could like causally increase your risk of some diseases but it is also the case and I think uh, as as, uh, Stephanie alluded to and as uh, Jordan and Alston cover in their episode it is probably more often the case that like when you get sick getting sick is what reduces your serum vitamin d levels mm-hmm. um like due to changes in vitamin d metabolism due to like changes in tissue usage of vitamin d or potentially due to like secondary behavioral effects like mm-hmm. you know oftentimes if you're sick and like not feeling good you're not spending a ton of time in the sun right and so like <laughs> it, it sometimes could be as simple as that Um, so yeah, like oftentimes low vitamin D is reflective of poor health rather than the cause of poor health. Um, and if that's the case, like consuming more vitamin D may not have much of an impact on your serum levels of vitamin D. Um, but if you have like low vitamin D status because you consume very little vitamin D or you just get no sun exposure, then consuming more vitamin D and getting more sun exposure will probably help. Um, So yeah, basically like TLDR, it's complicated. And don't construe any of this as medical advice. But uh, yeah, the the relationship between like vitamin D intake and vitamin D status is far from a direct one-to-one relationship. And uh, even though like blood levels of vitamin D are associated with your risk of a bunch of diseases, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, being in the sun more and consuming more vitamin D will like causally reduce your risk of those diseases. Cause you could have low vitamin D status because you are already like developing those diseases. Um, and yeah, beyond that, if you want to know <laughs> what's going on for you as an individual, uh, talk to your doctor. Because there, there are so many like individual discrete things that could be going on. Like I could not possibly know why you have low vitamin D status. And whether that's indicative of low intake or the fact that you're already sick or like something else, just weird stuff about vitamin D metabolism, maybe you have a bunch in your cells and not much in your blood. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what's going on for any person who wants to know. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. yeah. Thanks for the shout out, Stephanie.
0: Uh, okay, next question from... Joel Phillips. And uh, Stephanie, uh, not thanks for the shout-out. If if Lindsay gets too big of a head, she will realize that she's much better than me and leave me alone and desolate. And that is my greatest fear in life. (laughs) Okay, next question from Joel Phillips. Hi, guys. With micronutrient counting often being laborious, time-consuming, and sometimes infeasible, given a lack of available data for many different foods... Are there any good proxy measurements that could help you tell whether you are reaching the recommended targets on average without actually having to meticulously track each food and micronutrient you eat? For example, could you count the grams of vegetables, fruits and whole grains you eat per day? Or could you eat specific amounts of a few specific vegetables that, when combined, seem to end up hitting most micronutrient targets for most people? Thanks guys. Uh, yeah. So thank you for the question and to answer it. Um, I think not really, uh, at least not a proxy measure I would feel good about. Um, but I'm like, I'm a, I'm a stickler for if I'm going to propose something as a proxy measure, it has to be valid and reliable and like, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, there, there's nothing that would clear my bar as a good proxy measure, uh, for this, but like, in general to kind of answer the question conceptually, I think that you're in pretty good shape. If you consume a diet comprised of whole foods with plenty of fruits, veggies, whole grains, nuts, seeds, mushrooms, etc. Um, like you're, you're probably in good shape. And if you're consuming like a little bit less of a particular micronutrient than may theoretically be optimal, like you'll probably be close enough that like you won't even notice and like, it'll be fine. Uh, as to the question about specific foods to maybe uh, pay mind to, we we actually mentioned uh, some of them earlier in the episode. So like green leafy vegetables rock and the ones that show up like most often is like individual green leafy vegetables um, that are like very micronutrient dense. Uh, spinach, kale, chard, and mustard greens were the ones that showed up a lot. Um, peppers pop up. Uh, kind of a lot and mushrooms as well Uh, and mushrooms like mostly for the weird ones Um, and uh, shellfish also pops up kind of a lot um, particularly for certain minerals um, and liver as well like in, in terms of like micronutrient dense animal products like liver is about as good as you can do um And then also, like we mentioned before, nori shows up a lot um, and just kind of like seaweeds and and algaes in general uh, tend to be quite good Um, if you're you're looking for just like specific things to check out. Uh, And as mentioned previously, don't get like too hyper fixated on that because like fruits in general and like berries and cherries in particular are really great but also like, aren't that micronutrient dense? Like don't get too focused on just micronutrients, even from like whole food sources and miss out on some great foods that don't have the highest micronutrient density in existence. Okay, Uh, second to last question from Nick. Hello, my name is Nick and I'm from Germany. My question would be in regards to folic acid supplementation, especially in family planning situations. In Europe, you have a lot of FUD in regards to folic acid supplementation when it comes to prenatal and postnatal phases. And the impression is given that women are not even able to conceive when not supplementing with folic acid. Um, my understanding would be that folic acid is mainly needed for establishing the umbilical cord and laying the foundations of a spinal cord, but not much more. It would be great if you could give a rundown on actual supplementation needs, especially in context with a well-balanced or good diet in Western civilizations. Uh, thank you
1: very much and keep up the good work.
0: <sighs> All right. Um... So thank you for the question, and I'm going to attempt to answer it without getting myself in too much trouble, uh, because I'm not an OBGYN, and uh, I feel like it will be very challenging to answer this question without it sounding like I'm giving medical advice, which is not my intention. But uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll try to talk about this question and this topic in in kind of general terms, and and hope I don't get too far out over my skis. Um, so, just in general, um, before before I start talking about this, um, I will note some resources that I'll link in the show notes here. One is a good review from 2011 that I think is still like quite up to date. Like I don't think there's been a ton of development in this area since then. Um, but for a more recent source. Um, I'm also going to link like a little back and forth from the Lancet in 2022. There essentially was a a review, uh, like a narrative review, like cheerleading the idea that uh, folic acid food fortification should be like mandatory and universal, and there was a letter to the editor disagreeing with that perspective. and I mean, it mostly follows the stuff in the 2011 review. But mm-hmm. if if you're concerned that, ah, there's an expiration date on science, like you're fine with the 2011 review. But if you want something more up to date, there is some stuff from 2022 as well. Um, so yeah, just in general, the main purpose of uh, like recommending folic acid supplementation to women who are, like depending on the context, either, um, like intentionally trying to become pregnant, or um, sometimes the recommendation is given just to women of childbearing age who are sexually active and might become pregnant in an unplanned way. Um, but yeah, like it's it's pretty common for um, doctors to recommend prenatal vitamins and kind of they're I mean they're basically multivitamins, but like the thing that they're um, like the, the thing in particular that characterizes them is uh, folic acid fortification. So they tend to have either 400 or 800 micrograms of folic acid. And that is uh, like most health bodies recommend um, women who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant to take a folic acid supplement. Uh, so as, as you alluded to, Nick, the Two main things that that that's involved with is the the development of the umbilical cord and also um, like preventing neural tube defects and more so the neural tube defects than the umbilical cord, um, and the the main one that people are concerned about is spina spina bifida. Like that's the disease most often resulting from a fetus with a neural tube defect that still goes to term. Um, And so yeah like in general um either food fortification with with folic acid or like vitamins with folic acid uh, are very effective at preventing most neural tube defects like that's not particularly controversial um when folic acid fortification started in the us and like other parts of the of the developed world uh, miscarriages due to neural tube defects went down Um, babies born with diseases like spina bifida as a result of neural tube defects decreased. Um, like it, it works for that purpose. Um, and like, it's, it's, it's very much not the case that women can't conceive without taking a folic acid supplement. I mean, like most of the world doesn't have access to folic acid supplements. And, uh, I mean, people in general didn't have folic acid supplements until what, probably the sixties or seventies. And like, we made it this far as a species, like, (laughs) a lot of babies are are born and have been born without it Mm -hmm. uh although like i understand that that was that was hyperbole Um, so the the anti case um like spelled out in the letter to the editor from uh in the lancet in 2022 that will be linked in the show notes um mostly has to do with the fact that one Although folic acid supplementation is very effective at preventing most neural tube defects, neural tube defects themselves are also relatively uncommon. So the estimated like global pre- prevalence of pregnancies with neural tube de- with a fetus with neural tube defects is like about two per thousand pregnancies. Um, so you know, that's it's not like a one in a million thing, but it's also not like super common. And there is now starting to be some concern that folic acid supplementation in some cases may do more harm than good, Hmm. Um, in particular when it's coupled with uh, like a a B12 deficiency. So there's some research in older adults suggesting that folic acid supplementation when coupled with either a B12 deficiency or just generally low levels of B12 intake um, has been linked to cognitive decline. And I think the jury's still out about whether, whether that's a causal relationship or not. Um, and there's also some research from India suggesting that women taking folic acid supplements with who also have low B12 status, their, um, their children tend to have higher rates of, uh, obesity and insulin resistance which again, like it's not entirely clear if that's just a correlation or causal. Like, you know, it, it could be kind of, both of those things could just kind of be correlates with poverty. Like people who have diets lower in B12, they might have some other factors going on that would like predispose them to increase risk of cognitive decline or obesity or insulin resistance in their children. So like, um, yeah, like it's it's like the anti-case I don't think is like, ironclad but like there there are some research findings that give people a bit of like calls for concern um so like my recommendation is just do whatever the fuck your doctor tells you to do um i'm absolutely not going to go against that um and like yeah it is like there is a reason that they recommend folic acid supplements and folic acid uh food fortification is a pretty common thing and that is because like that is very effective at preventing um, a lot of types of neural tube defects. Like there, there are causes other than folate deficiencies that can cause neural tube defects, but like a lot of them are like related to folate deficiencies. And yeah, like they work really, really well for that. Um, and I think the scientific consensus is that um, like for most people, most of the time, the benefits outweigh the risks. And if you want to deal with it more than that on an individual level again that's i think a conversation to have with your doctor okay uh last question from charles Bose. two questions about micronutrients first is about taking vitamin k with vitamin d i was wondering what the evidence is behind taking vitamin k along with vitamin d Specifically on the impact on cardiovascular disease risk, because I've seen this recommended many times. The other questions about boron, I've seen boron supplementation kind of feel like increasingly recommended. I was wondering what the evidence actually says about supplementing with boron. All right, Charles, thank you for those questions. So, um, yeah, starting with the first one uh, supplementing vitamin K along with vitamin D. Um, I think that that's something that we'll know more about in a couple years. So there is some promising epidemiological evidence related to uh, vitamin K status and vitamin K intake um, related to like heart disease outcomes. So like people who eat more vitamin K and people who have like better like uh, serum vitamin K status um tend to have lower rates of cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease mortality but much like we've we've covered i I feel like multiple times just in this episode correlation is not always causation and um yeah in, in this case like it could be that supplementing with vitamin K does cause positive cardiovascular health outcomes um, or it could just be a mere association that's that's showing up in the research to this point. Um there are, I believe, uh like high-quality RCTs underway. Most of the randomized control trials that exist to this point on vitamin K supplementation are like relatively short and have relatively small samples and are relatively inconclusive. Um the idea behind vitamin K supplementation is that, um, so vitamin K is a cofactor for a protein called, uh, that's often just referred to as MGP or Matrix GLA protein, um, which helps like prevent arterial calcification. And so, like, vitamin D helps with calcium absorption. Um, and, and like D and K are both like implicated in, in calcium metabolism generally. And so like, there are some people that recommend them to be taken together, like to kind of help like prevent arterial calcification, um, like due, due to the effects on the, the MG on MGP. Um, and yeah, like the, the mechanism makes sense. The, <clears throat> the epidemiological research is promising, um, but yeah, like, at, at this point before, one, like, I personally wouldn't be making this recommendation in the first place, because we're talking about, like, a recommendation for, like, a specific disease outcome. Like, that's that's for doctors to make. Um, but in terms of, like, something I would feel confident making a statement about, if not a recommendation, like, at this point, I, I want to see RCTs, because, like, correlations don't always pan out to, like, causal... Uh, effects on like disease risk or various outcomes in practice um, and yeah like it, as I understand it research is currently underway that will give more clarity on that topic but uh yeah we're we're just kind of waiting for it to be published um so yeah it's it's promising but but not conclusive that's that's kind of what I would say about vitamin k um for boron um, I both both thank you for asking this question and also resent you for asking this question because i've known that excitement about boron has been <laughs> kind of floating around for a while yeah. but i don't know why for some reason it's just not something i wanted to look into um i i think it's because like a lot of the people promoting boron are folks who generally annoy me um cuz like like it's it's been just based on like my kind of fitness media consumption diet, um, stuff related to boron has been inescapable. And Mm -hmm. like most of the more promising stuff, I think relates to like bone health and like osteoarthritis. But the people that talk about boron the most tend to be like folks who kind of straddle the line between fitness influencers and masculinity influencers. Because there are like a couple of small studies suggesting that like boron supplementation may increase testosterone levels a little bit yeah and so like yeah, if 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 any if any like non-pharmaceutical increases testosterone like the most annoying people on the internet are never going to shut the fuck up about <laughs> it and i think i think that that's the reason that i haven't wanted to look into it more um so anyway uh thanks for the question because it forced me to look into it a little bit more um and so yeah to kind of provide a good resource to check out there is a 2015 paper that i suspect is where a lot of the optimism about boron came from and it's like one of the things that got people talking about it more cuz like i don't remember people talking about boron in like 2013 which is like a time when i was dumber and i would have been far more interested in people saying like ooh this thing increases testosterone cuz like i used to think that was like way more important than it actually is um but yeah, like I don't remember people talking about boron in like 2012, 2013. Like it does seem to be like a post-2015 thing. And this paper has been cited like over 300 times. So it's been pretty influential. Like, And so I suspect this is where a lot of the, the chatter about it originated and where a lot of the optimism came from. And uh, this paper, one, like has a good title. Like it has a catchy title for a scientific paper. It's Nothing Boring About Boron. Um, and the author is uh, Pizorno um, and uh, oh the, the main degree listed behind his name is MDiv Master of Divinity which I think uh, is definitely the credential you would want for studying Boron um, but anyway uh, <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm not trying to talk shit like I, I just have so much like resistance built up around this right because the people who talk about Boron annoy me so much Um, But yeah, so like this is, it's a decent paper. It's, um, I would say less of an objective evaluation of all of the evidence and more kind of like a cheerleading paper where, uh, which is, which is totally fair, totally fine. It's just something to be aware of going into it where it's someone who's like specifically trying to make the affirmative case. That boron is good for a bunch of these outcomes, and that people should supplement with boron. So it yeah it, it covers all of the evidence like in favor of it, but you know isn't isn't going to uh, spend a lot of time discussing like some of the weaknesses or like drawbacks in the current body of evidence. So like if you're, you're like if you're like me and kind of a boron skeptic or if you're just uninformed about this and you want to know like why people are excited about it I mm. think I think this is not a bad place to start um and uh in general um it, like there are studies finding uh like outcomes that seem pretty promising so like I said I think I think most of this stuff that is the closest to being solid is looking at like effects on bone health or like um, function and pain in people with osteoarthritis. Although there's also some stuff looking at um, like boron supplementation, reducing inflammatory biomarkers and begrudgingly, there is some research suggesting that boron supplementation may increase testosterone levels. Although that research is a little bit nuanced because um, it also suggests that like there might be potential boron toxicity reducing testosterone levels. So like in one study, they use like um, in general, I think what would be considered a relatively low dose of like two or three grams a day, mm-hmm. and an even lower dose of like five hundred milligrams. And at, like, a week or two weeks, there was a larger increase in testosterone in the group taking, like, two or three grams a day. But, like, six weeks later, that group actually experienced a small decrease in testosterone. But the group taking, five, uh, like, 500 milligrams was still, like, it it appeared that they were experiencing a continued increase in testosterone. Which suggests that, like, boron might bioaccumulate in the testes and a few consume too much and you're interested in the testosterone outcomes like maybe it's going to do more harm than good um anyway not something i would take for testosterone because it seems like there's uh, some unresolved questions and i don't know kind kind of skeptical about that one um but yeah like like basically there is i would say some calls for optimism but i would also temper excessive optimism on this topic with a couple things One is that most of the research has just looked at outcomes and there's not that much mechanistic stuff. So like there, there are some like positive findings related to like osteoarthritis, like pain and function, but like, I can't tell you why those findings were observed. And like, you don't, you don't need to know a mechanism for like an effect to be real, but for me to evaluate how plausible I find these findings, a mechanism sure would be fucking helpful. Um, Because, and this is like the other kind of uh, thing I would say to temper some of the optimism around this, most of the research finding positive effects from boron supplementation tend to be relatively small studies um, and tend to be relatively short term and tend to be studies that would be pretty cheap to run. And that's like the perfect uh, set of circumstances for just like the the wonders of publication bias to do its thing. And um, just wind up with a bunch of null findings that are just in a file drawer somewhere with the handful of positive findings getting published. And therefore like a pretty unrealistic and like unrepresentative view of the research so like i don't know i don't i don't know how seriously to take this stuff i do strongly suspect that if boron supplementation does have some of the positive effects that have been observed the magnitude of the effect is probably considerably smaller than the current body of evidence would suggest it is because again like it is currently the perfect body of evidence for there to just be false positives, file drawer effect, like null findings not getting published, therefore like leading to an inflated, uh, perception of like what the effect magnitudes are. Um, and like until some like more solid mechanisms are identified, like I retain like a healthy level of skepticism that it works. If I don't have like a good, like at least a reasonable understanding of how it could work. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, that's that's about where I'm at. Uh, but kind of the thing I want to end on is that 2015 paper, which, like I said, is, is kind of like a cheerleading paper for boron supplementation. Um, it recommends supplementing with three grams of boron per day. But it also says, quote, A diverse, plant-food-rich diet is estimated to provide approximately 1.5 to 3 milligrams per day of boron. Foods of plant origins, especially fruits, leafy vegetables, nuts, and legumes, are rich in boron, as are plant-derived fermented beverages, i.e. wine, cider, and beer. Meat, fish, and dairy products, however, are poor sources. Peanuts and peanut butter, other nuts, raisins, wine, and avocado are also top contributors to boron intake. Although coffee and milk are low in boron, they provide 12% of total boron intake in the United States due to the volume consumed and the fact that the standard American diet contains so few servings of fruits, vegetables, and legumes. (laughs) Um, So like, going back to where we ended this episode on, like, if boron does a lot of this good stuff, I kind of think like, just try to eat some fruits and veggies, like a a generally healthy diet. Um, Like, like, Due to, like, due to the fact that, like, it might bioaccumulate in tissues, like, particularly the testes, like, I, and there's so many unresolved questions, like, I think, I think that supplementing with it would be relatively unwise, especially at, like, reasonably high doses, because, like, yeah, like, I, mm, I, I just feel like we're playing with fire, and there's, like, too many unresolved questions, but, uh, there are no downsides and plenty of upsides to eating plenty of fruits and vegetables. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in boron for bone health, for modulating inflammation, for possible effects on osteoarthritis, for possible effects on testosterone for any of it, um, That's cool. Like I, I don't want to like completely trample on your optimism, but the recommendation I would give for boron consumption, is to skip the supplementation, just eat fruits and veggies. Because um, then, even if none of the shit related to boron pans out, there are other benefits to eating fruits and veggies, and you, uh, yeah, you'll you'll still come out ahead. Whereas if you just took a boron supplement, um, you you wouldn't. Um, if this stuff doesn't pan out. So yeah, uh, that's that's all we have for this episode. That yeah. is it for the questions.
1: Yeah. Fat Bear Week is underway, just to confirm. Oh,
0: hell yeah. Give us some updates.
1: So they have the left side of the bracket all filled out. Um, On the left side of the bracket, 901, my current favorite. She's a mama bear. Very cute. Very traditional bear shape. Very impressive transformation. 480 Otis this year, not as impressive. looks like he didn't get as much food. 128 grazer though an absolute unit once again Ooh, hell yeah looking absolutely insane
0: i might be jumping back on the grazer train
1: 151 walker is the one they're introducing right now he looks great he's so big he's just sitting in the water licking his chops it looks like it's gonna be a great year
0: I am so excited. Okay, uh, listener, thanks for listening. We're going to wrap up this episode really quick because I want we to watch
1: this live stream. Yeah, I got
0: I got to hop on the Fat Bear Week live stream. Like this isn't a bit. I am extremely excited about this. So uh, thanks for listening. We love and appreciate you. We'll be back in a couple weeks. If you have questions for the podcast, again, next week is going to be an all Q and A episode. So if there's anything you'd like us to cover, record a voice clip, email it to podcast at strongerbyscience Thank you for listening. Goodbye.